Good morning, members, and good morning to everyone who we have on the call today and uh, very welcome to this morning's health committee meeting. So I now, I think I'll just check with the clerk, the clerk but I'm okay, clerk, we can declare the meeting open to the public online, am I correct? Yep, certainly, Colin Megan, um, seeing here you well, if, um, Brendan, if you could bring the rest of the members up, please, into the spotlight. That's us ready to go now, Chair. Thank you and good morning, members. And I'd like to welcome everyone to uh, our committee meeting here this morning and declare the meeting open to the public online. Um, I'd like to remind members of the uh, protocols regarding the use of electronic devices. I also would like to mention to members and to panel members that uh, sound quality is greatly improved with the use of headsets and also that people can ensure they are on mute when they're not contributing to the committee session. That would also be appreciated. So thank you very much. So um, I, we have received no apologies. Are members aware of any apologies for this morning's meeting? No, members aren't. Thank you. Okay, members, in terms of chairperson's business then, um, I suppose, first of all, this morning, I just do want to reflect on the very significant issue of waiting lists that has been um, rightfully aired uh, across across uh, many, many uh, programmes this morning. And I think, members, we are all deeply concerned about the ongoing issue and the increasing waiting list that we are seeing. Um, I think we are just... Dealing and emerging, hopefully, from the COVID crisis. But in my view, waiting lists are a crisis for those very many people who are on waiting lists out there, who are in pain, who are in fear, and who sadly, people who are passing away while waiting for the treatment that they so badly need and so badly deserve. So I think, members, that we need to send out a very clear message, loud and clear, that there is cross-party support for action in tackling waiting lists and ending the suffering of so many people in our community. And I think it's imperative that we see the same type of concerted and concentrated and focused effort that was taken to COVID-19 will now also be applied to waiting lists. So I would I would ask committee members, um, I, I will ask for committee members' views on that, but I think, committee, we need to send a very strong message out here that we support concerted effort in relation to this. So I have an indication there from Paula. Go ahead, Paula, please, and then I see Pam indicating as well. Um, thank you, Chair. And I want to put on record my thanks to Royal College of Surgeons for their 10-point plan this week. Um, and I suppose we will engage with the Health Minister around that. But I uh, would like to put forward a more substantive proposal this morning, Chair. And that is for us as a health committee to conduct a, a committee inquiry. We're spending around £6 billion a year on our health service, give or take a few hundred million. And we are hearing from the frontline healthcare workers, like the surgeons and the nurses, etc., about the pressures and the issues. But I want to drill back down a few layers to find out how and why we are in such a mess. There's the same pressures down south. There's the same pressures over in GB. Why have we got into such a mess here? Is it to do with the financial management? Is it to do with the lack of recruitment? Is it to do with the lack of investment and in, in trust in the wrong places? I think I'd like to see a committee inquiry take forward a robust review as to how we got into such a mess because we saw extra money come in through the confidence and supply money a few years ago, which was great. 
but it plugged a gap and then we went right back and worse position. So it's not just about funding, it's about the systemic issues that exist right across the health service. So my proposal this morning would be for us to conduct an inquiry into um, why it has got to the stage and for us to put forward our own robust proposals, having engaged across the sector, different sectoral groups and specialities of the health service as to what the health service, Department of Health needs to do to fix it for the long term. Thank you. Thank you, Paula. And I'm going then to Pam Cameron, then uh, Carol Nicholan, then Jerry Carroll. Thanks, Chair. Go ahead, Pam, please. Thank you, Chair. And yes, I do have the, the, the very similar concerns. We all have constituents who are um, miserable and in pain and waiting, and indeed, as you say, Chair, potentially dying as well. Uh, so it, it's not acceptable. Uh, we've seen too many reports that have uh, that are still gathering dust and no action has been taken and i would um very be be very content to second paula's proposal there that we do uh look at a committee inquiry into all of these issues because there's something is not right uh, and i think we need to get to the nub of of what the issues and the problems are i also want to welcome the the royal college of surgeons um 10 step um action plan as well. I think it's a very welcome intervention, very timely intervention, and uh, we, we need uh, every single uh, piece of evidence and every single piece of opinion from all those health professionals going forward so that we can manage our way out of this mess. Thank you, Pam and Carol. Go ahead, please. Um, thank you, Chair. I, I have no issue with any of this. Um, However, anybody listening or watching us this morning is going to hear another process and notwithstanding the points that both Paula and Pam have made. I mean, the issue is there has been systemic inequalities in health for a long time and waiting lists have been one of the biggest challenges that any health minister has had to take. And notwithstanding the fact of Tory Asturday, Tory cuts, which has actually hit frontline services, so the 10 point plan from the Royal College of Surgeons is a great intervention, but what's missing in my opinion, and it's obviously not their job, is what happens with the social care. So for example, if you get all the surgeries done, then what about the care packages? What about the allied health professionals? What about the gap in intensivists? What about the gaps in nursing staff? So all this has a ripple effect and it's not certainly not to pay for what they've done. I welcome it and I'm genuine about that. But everything in health has a ripple effect on something else. So if we're agreeing to look at something, an inquiry, whatever it is, fine. But let's not just do it on the hoof of um, the media this morning or the media the day before. Let's take a bit of time to look at exactly where the pressure points are. Waiting lists are certainly there. We had GPs in last week. That's an issue as well. Uh, and also let's look at opportunities to bring in perhaps health economists and others. Um, because if we're all saying, and we all, I think we all are, that we're taking a, a collegiate approach, we need to take politics out of health, then we need to show what that looks like. So I do think we need to take a bit of time to consider what the basis of the inquiry will be, um, who we need, what we need them for, but absolutely take all those other issues in regarding the Royal College's plan because it's it's critical. We could get surgeries done and then we could have a backlog because there's no care packages, no OTs and all the rest. So I, I, I'm completely into doing whatever I can to help. 
Thank you, Carl and Jerry. Go ahead, please. Thanks, Jerry. Um, yeah, listen, just the figures are obviously quite astounding. Like it's one in four people waiting on a um, an appointment, a hospital appointment, over three hundred thousand people waiting on a first consultant appointment, and it's it's. Uh, it's scandalous, really. It is an absolute scandal, and I'm happy to support uh, an inquiry. But I think also, uh, you know, we'll have to deal with the, the political reasons that brought us here. I mean, we were told that um, we need to enter into a new normal after COVID. Um, uh, we'll have to move away from the status quo. And all these, I suppose, buzzwords, and I probably used them myself. Um, but we just uh, voted through a budget there uh, this week, or uh, other parties did. Um, which basically doesn't deal with any of these problems, which still funnels large sums of money to agency firms, which still funds um, the so-called independent, the private sector, and in fact uh, recreates the two-tier health system. So I'm definitely for an inquiry, but we also have to understand the political reasons that got us here, and that's down to the underfunding of the health service, uh, the lack of investment, you know, the fact that we have 3,000 nurses short, in our health service, so unless we deal with those issues, then we're just going to come back to this time and time again. So, for inquiry, yes, but also we need to deal with the political uh, decisions that brought us here. Thanks. Thank you. And any other uh, any other views on any of that? Okay. Well, committee content then that we asked the clerk to take a look at at uh, how. Uh, terms of reference or whatever or what it would be that, that we would be looking at. I think it's right that we don't we don't that we do consider exactly what it is because I do agree that there is um a body of evidence around what needs to happen. And I mean for example, we we know as of this morning that there are five thousand seven hundred and sixty five vacancies within our health and social care trusts. And that pressure is being applied onto the staff who are currently in service. So I think it's very important that whatever we do, uh, that that it's it's targeted and it's adding value. That it's not a restatement of of concerns. So I have an indication from Paula, and then I have Jonathan as well. Um, Chair, yeah, ahead, I, I appreciate the feedback, and I agree with all of it. I, I suppose that's the point I'm making: is how did we get to the point where there were so many vacancies? How is so much money being plowed in, and it's not being used effectively? So. I, I welcome all the feedback and I look forward to the clerk coming forward with very robust um, terms of reference that doesn't replicate what others have already said. Thank you. Um, yeah, we'll bring, we'll bring that back for, con for committee consideration. Chiara, go ahead. Chiara Hunter, please. Uh, thank you, Chair. Sorry, uh, yes, Chair, sorry. Apologies, Chair. I should have went to Jonathan there first and then I'll come to you no again. Worries. So go ahead, Jonathan. Chair, happy there if Chiara wants to go first. I'll, I'll come in behind her. Go ahead, Chair. Okay, Carol, go ahead. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Chair. Uh, just to add uh, comments of full agreement, um, I, I think you know some of the statistics we've looked at uh, over the past few weeks have been um, just absolutely horrific, and we're hearing about people using their life savings to save their lives. It's just an absolute dire situation. Uh, and I do welcome the Royal College of Surgeons' uh, ten-point action plan. And one thing that I note, I think, it is really crucial when we talk about what our future looks like within our health service is the overall well-being of our staff. Uh, and ensuring, for example, uh, surgeons have psychological support uh, and robust support uh, as we move forward and also acknowledging that our nurses feel overlooked uh, and undervalued. Uh, and that's something crucial, I think, if we want to recruit and retain staff, that that's held as the utmost priority. Thank you. Thank you, Chair and Jonathan. Thank, thank you, Chair. And look, 
you know, broadly, and we've heard everybody over this course of this morning and indeed in the committee, everybody's agreed with the plight that we're facing here. Like it is enormous. The task ahead is vast and there can't be any room for politics in it. Uh, and I think probably that's the hybrid sort of approach to I think Carol or Carol was maybe talking about in terms of we can spend days going over what has happened in the past and, and we all are well averse of the issues facing our health service. Uh, there is numerous reports that they're sitting there, they're, they tell us what needs to happen to improve services. I suppose what I would love to see maybe the committee focus on is yes, the implementation of those reports uh, which which is needed, but oh, equally, I think probably what I would like to see maybe is how we as a committee can uh, tailor a response and bring something new uh, to to the public sphere about how we address the immediate concern post-COVID on waiting lists uh, in the short term. These reports that we have will undoubtedly, if enacted to, to their full, will, will help transform our health service in the longer term, which is needed to, to stop this continual build-up and waiting list, what I would like to see is how we can immediately um, adopt an approach to deal with the, the, the immediate pressure. So I don't know if that's something that we can incorporate in that, but I'm very conscious that I don't believe, I think our, our time would be best used looking at something like that, as opposed to um, building on reports that are already there. In fact, that we could maybe be pushing further to be implemented. It's just thoughts, colleagues, and I wondered if anybody shared that consensus. Yeah, and I, I think I think one of the things that we we that actually should and does need to happen now is a, a dedicated executive meeting to see how as a, as an executive encompassing um, all the parties that are on that executive how we all agree in terms of immediate actions and I think that's really the space we're in now where we need to see and I also very much welcome the Royal College of Surgeons bringing forward practical proposals. And that is something that should be built upon. Um, and we need to see similar action, I think, in relation to GP access, because that's adding for the pressure onto the, the waiting list issue. So it is complex and interrelated. But I think I think uh, really this does require a whole executive approach and an urgency and a, and a concerted effort that we have seen with COVID-19 is applied. So I'll, I'll ask the clerk also to, to draw up a form of words to circulate to committee members in relation to that. So the committee demonstrate our preparedness to play our role in relation to all of that. Or Leah, I have an indication from you as well. Yeah, thanks, Chair. Um, it was just, uh, I don't disagree with um, any of the points that's been made previously by members, but just on Jonathan's point there at, at the end, I think that that's this is where our focus needs to be because I think that there's been a couple of issues that's been spoke about around, you know, the GP staff vacancies, the psychological support for staff, and they're all really, really important things. But I think for the committee in the immediate term, it needs to be how are we helping those people or what influence can we have with the health minister and the executive to try and tackle the waiting lists presently of people that are sitting waiting on these operations. So I think that as, as refined and as focused we can be, in the sense of how do we um, practically help with the immediacy of people that are on these waiting lists at the moment? Because the longer term issues around the health service and the transformation, you know, other members are right, it has been covered in previous reports. And that probably is a bigger, longer term task. But for the moment, it's what can we do in the here and now um, to help with those lists. So I think the more refined we can make the, the inquiry, if that's the approach that we're going to take, the better. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think there's, there's two separate things. There's that immediate call that, that we that we have outlined there and then looking into what we might usefully do in terms of an inquiry or in terms of, of further action. Um, and I think it's also, it, you know, this, like, my own view is there is there's no single department, no single minister, no single party that can deliver on the scale and complexity of the problems that we face. So I think this absolutely on behalf of what people out there need is for that this transcends party politics and also goes beyond election cycles. This is a long term and we need to do immediate, medium and long term actions that are sustainable and that deliver for people and that tackle and address those waiting lists. Alan, I have a, uh, an indication there from Alan as well. Go ahead, Alan, please. Alan, you're on mute. Uh, yeah. This, yeah. Can you hear me now, Chair? Yeah. Yes, I'm hearing you, Alan. Thank you. Chairman, uh, I absolutely agree with uh, your, your last comment, sir. This is, this is long term. Uh, I know we're, we're, we're all, it's, it's easy to throw out the sound bites that we'll have to do. This is a, it's an appalling situation. Uh, but I, I don't think that we can just overnight meet the expectations of, of, of the public. This is going to take time. Um, and I, I'd just be interested in, in the other members uh, on the committee, what they feel is a time scale for when we'll get to a point where our waiting lists are actually under control. I think that it could take you know two or three years with the best will in the world. Um, so I, I just would be interested. What do other people feel? What what sort of time scale do other parties feel is achievable? Um, you know, going forward. Sure. Well, uh, yes. Go ahead, Carol. Sure. Thank you. Um, so notwithstanding the issues that everybody's covered this morning, um, and as I said in my own remarks, I think the pressure point is certainly on waiting lists, getting those waiting lists tackled and then getting the health and social care wrapped around them because you just can't do operations and ignore the packages afterwards. And I'm not saying anybody is, but just need to build that in. At sea timescale and all the rest of it, um, I, I think this is going to take years. We aren't in a position to say, I don't think we're in a position, Alan, to say how long it's going to take. But I think it will be a really strong message to send out to people. First of all, Colm has said there needs to be an executive meeting just on this. And I think we, we all should agree to that. Um, that's one thing. The other issue is we do need to focus on the waiting lists. Do we need to come back to the other stuff? We absolutely do. We absolutely do. But I, I think for the sake of this morning, the, the pressure you know, is where, where the waiting lists are. So, I mean, I, I think the, the issues or the proposals, not formally, but the, the certainly focus is that Callum and indeed others have given this morning is what should be coming out of this committee this morning, to be honest, asking for a, a meeting of the executive just on this, but also asking them to look at other options to help the budget around tackling the waiting list. Um, and then, you know, trying to take it from there in terms of that focus. Thank you. Yeah, and, and actually, I also think that the Royal College of Surgeons demonstrate the uh, the the uh, value of co-production and of listening to the people who are on the ground and who understand the difficulties. And I think that's that's an excellent example of that being brought forward in terms of real practical measures that can be done. 
um, to to improve the situation and address it. Okay, members. So we're, we're we are agreed there that we will look at at potentially any uh, any inquiry how that might look, but also that we will. Um, Put together a position from the committee in writing that that endorses the uh, the, the critical nature of this uh, situation that we're dealing with with waiting list, and that this committee supports um, concentrated and concerted uh, executive and all party action to deal with waiting lists. So thank you for that, members. Um, I'm going to then just a couple of other items of business then from chair's business. So uh, just to inform the committee that I attended a town hall meeting with the American alumni on, on the COVID response. A very, very interesting meeting, I have to say, very interesting range of questions. Um, I also attended a meeting with Jim Shannon, MP, on screening over last weekend on screening for genetic eye problems. Again, that's an issue that I think members would find of interest, and I believe that there will be correspondence coming to the committee on foot of that meeting for members' information. Um, also, members, we, we, we're very conscious, I think, as a committee of the pressure that has been continuing to, to uh, be piled upon curers, unpaid and informal curers out there in the community. And uh, the clerk has circulated, I think, uh, wording. Uh, so a draft committee motion has been circulated to highlight curers week, which commences on the 7th of June. Uh, if members are content, I would like to forward that motion to the business committee for consideration. So I'd be grateful if members could respond to the clerk by 12 noon on Friday to advise if they have any amendments they wish to look at for that motion and to allow the clerk to get that to the business committee on Friday. Um, in terms of going back to the Royal College of Surgeons meeting, and again, um, I have met with them uh, over, we, we met with them in committee, a very, very good session with them, I have to say. We've all received a copy of their 10-step, not 10-years action plan. I think we are grateful to the Royal College of Surgeons for producing that report and for previous engagement with the committee on the issue of waiting lists. I would suggest members that we write to the department seeking its views on the action plan that the Royal College have put out. It may also be useful, members, to schedule another informal meeting with the Royal College to further consider their action plans and to explore that in more detail. So would members be content with that uh, approach on the Royal College? Of surgeons? Yeah, members are continuing. Thank you. Okay, members, so moving on then to our draft minutes, and I refer you there to the minutes of the meeting of the 20th of May, which are tab 3.1. Are members content with those minutes? Yeah, thank you, members. And there are no matters arising from the minutes today. So, members, we're going to go into our first substantive session in relation to the Health and Social Care Bill, and this is a briefing from NILGA and from chairpersons of local commissioning groups. So um, item five there is an oral evidence session on the health and social care bill. I refer members to the clerk's memo, providing a summary of the written responses at tab 5.1 of your pack, and to a copy of the NILGA submission at tab 5.2. So I would now like to welcome by video link, Dr. Nicola Heron. And Dr. Heron is chairperson of the local commissioning group, Chairs Forum. Good morning, Dr. Hearn. Can you hear me okay? Good morning, um, Colm. I can indeed. How are you? Okay. Not too bad, Nicola. Thank you. And also, we're joined by Mr. Paul Kiavna, who is Interim Director for Planning and Commissioning Health and Social Care Board. Morning, Colm. Can you hear me there, Paul? I can, Good Colm. Morning. Thank you. Morning, Good morning, Paul. Thank you. 
and also Miss Karen Smith. And Karen is head of policy and governance in the uh, local government association in Nelga. Uh, can you hear us okay, Karen? Yes, yes, I can. Thanks very much, Chair. It's good to be with you this morning. Thank you, and thank you all for joining us. And if I could just reiterate, uh, just for uh, sound quality, if members have access to a headset, please use that as that seems to help. And also if members can try to remain on mute when they're not uh, contributing directly. Um, so I will now invite witnesses to go ahead and give us some opening statements. And I suggest maybe I'll go back to Nicola first, but if we could maybe have, say, three or four minutes of, of an opening statement, and then we'll go to members' questions. Uh, please. So, Nicola, can I just check with you if that's, uh, can you go ahead? Yep, that's fine. Can you hear me okay? Yes, here you are fine, Nicola, thank you. Good, because uh, I don't have a he headset to hand. Um, thank you very much for the invite to come to, um, to talk to you all, and I was very reassured to hear the comments earlier in the group, um, because I suppose uh, uh, on on the ground level, we are totally reliant on the support of the governmental bodies for the health and social care of the people of Northern Ireland. Um, I represent the local commissioning groups. And for those of you who may not be aware of our role, we are the committees of the health boards. Um, and as you're also aware, this this is changing. The, the health board, it was decreed the health board was to close about five years ago. But with events overtook that decision. Um, uh, between executive closing down and then the pandemic. So we are now at the point of, of proper planning for the transition into the new arrangement, which is going to be called an integrated care system or ICS. Integrated care system is going to be similar in some ways to the old system. Um, it is still in the very much in the planning stages. Um, there is involvement of the various agencies that are all involved in providing health care on the ground for the people of Northern Ireland. Um, the, the, I suppose the beauty of the, the LCGs in the past was that there was representatives from a broad spectrum of service providers. Um, I'm a GP. I've been working for 30 years in up in Derry in the northwest. Um, and there was, there's other GPs on the group. There has there's pharmacists, dentists, allied health professionals, community and voluntary sector. Um, the Public Health Authority has representation on the group as well. And we have public meetings, a bit like yourselves, so that we, our role is to hear the voices of the people on the ground, to see what the health needs are and feed those needs back up through the, the um, statutory structures into the, where the decisions are made as regards commissioning of the, of, for healthcare. Um, the hope is that therefore we have a responsive system. Um, the transition into the new integrated care system is also now going to involve the trusts. In the past, the health boards would have commissioned the healthcare services from the trusts. In the new arrangement, the trust will also be at the table making the decisions about healthcare and how best to provide it. One, I suppose the pandemic has created what was already an unacceptable situation as regards waiting lists, and, and we've all been already discussing that. Um, it's made it absolutely intolerable at this point. Certain areas in particular, for example, scheduled um, operations, um, dementia care, all of those things just have completely, completely gone from being a bad situation to being an even worse situation. And there's been a lot of focus in meetings to see if we can come up with a strategy to try and meet the needs of, of, of the population in a, in a better way. I suppose what, what I see as a GP on the ground is that 
in the past people used to be very focused on where they got their treatment and I know as, as local representatives there was always a lot of pressure to keep services local and that would be operative services, operations, hospitals, outpatients, um, casualty departments, all of that. There was, there was a big push from the population to keep those as local as possible, to have them on the doorstep. My experience recently, particularly since COVID, has been that people are now much more concerned with when they're going to get their treatment as opposed to where. And I think it's from that point of view, it's a really good opportunity for it's going to tie in very well with this transition into an integrated care system where we're going to be able to look much more strategically at the more at the scheduled care, the operations, the people who desperately, desperately need to have hip operations done or gallbladder operations, things like that, cataract operations, life, I suppose life enhancing, but also life saving operations for a lot of people. They just need to be available. They need to be available sooner rather than later. So people are much less concerned that these services will be available to them on their doorstep. They're much more concerned that they, they want to have as possible. I think there was a guy on the radio when Mark Taylor was on a couple of days ago, and he, he was waiting for hip surgery, and he said he would crawl to Cork if that's what it took to get his hip operation done. And that is, I'm hearing that on the ground as well. Um, earlier, somebody else mentioned the two-tier system and health inequalities, and I know there's the old saying, your health is your wealth, but at the minute, unfortunately, in Northern Ireland, your wealth is your health. If you can afford to pay for your procedure, people are doing that. They are absolutely desperate. So we need something to change. We need something to improve. And as a healthcare professional um, and as a representative of the LCG, we really do need your support to ensure that health and social um, care is an absolute priority. We've seen from the pandemic that the, the whole economy, the whole well-being of the, the community depends on health being properly funded. Health is, is a circular thing. So um, somebody's mentioned earlier about GP access, having difficulties accessing your GP is affecting other things. And equally, when somebody is waiting for five years for hip surgery, GPs are inundated with those people needing ongoing care and recurring care. They're coming to us for help, for referral, for physiotherapy, for more pain relief for forms to be filled out for benefits. These are people that if they had their surgery would be independently living in a pain, you know, in a much more pain-free way. So everything has a knock-on effect in everything else. Um, the LCGs have been actively involved in community partnerships and looking at ways of um, improving the pathways for patients through the care system as best we can with what we have. Um, there's a, a big, uh, I suppose a, a project called No More Silos. I'm not sure if any of you are aware of that one. And it has been looking yeah, at yeah, yeah. Yeah, attendances at the emergency department. And there's some really good stuff that's coming out of that. And as much as anything else, what's good is there's been an enhanced communication and relationships between primary and secondary care. No More Silos. We have ongoing educational sessions now. They have been fortnightly during the acute phase. Ongoing, we are going to have monthly sessions where consultants in the hospital and GPs are going to get together to look at interface issues and to look at areas where we can improve the care of patients and ensure that they're not falling between two stools. So the LCG has played a pivotal role and we are, I suppose over the last couple of months and ongoing, we are looking at how we are going to become involved in the planning processes for the new integrated care system. There are various strategic groups are already set up and uh, Stevie Core, who uh, has, was the original chair of the chairs in the LCG, um, he on the um, the framework 
um, the policy framework group. And, and I think over the next nine months, the chairs of the LCG plus members of the LCG will become becoming more actively involved in the planning. As I say, the LCG is this broad church of people from all different backgrounds. So that should ensure that we have local representation at the very, um, I suppose, in, in the planning stages of the new integrated care system. Okay, thank, thank you, Nicola. And I'll go maybe then just in terms of order of introduction, I'll go to Paul then. Paul, do you want to make a few opening remarks, please? Sure, Colm, and thanks very much for the opportunity. As Nicola says, you know, we, we the, the way that we've managed ourselves from the point of view of commissioning services in the last number of years has been through the local commissioning uh, groups and, and obviously as part of the Health and Social Care Board. The board will close in the next year, as we all know, and I think we're now very focused on a new plan and model, and we're working hard to develop that. Uh, I'm co-chairing the, the new plan and model project board column, so you know, we really are focused on you know what, what do we want to retain, what's been good about the likes of local commissioning groups, for example, and Nicola's given you a flavour of that already, the way that they were able to integrate services locally, the way that they were able to bring together those various players to actually get, create much more joined-up care for people, and I think that's the key uh, in all of this. But I think we also want to, to think about the things that we that we need to strengthen. One of the things that we certainly need to strengthen is our connection with community planning. And we're very keen to ensure that these new this new integrated care system really closely links to community planning. And I think that's one of the areas we're working hard on, working with NILGA, talking to Solace, talking to the, the various sort of councils as well, just to get a good flavour of that. Well, the good thing, Colin, is we're already embedded uh, in uh, community planning. So we're, we're talking to ourselves and talking about community planning as well because we put a lot of effort into it. I think we know that we want to integrate the entire system. We want to make sure that we don't create in that disparities across Northern Ireland. You know, we're, we're a small place, and I think it's about trying as much as possible to have as much consistency regionally, but also give that authority uh, to local systems to allow them to make decisions that make best sense for their population. Uh, so, And I think it's always that 80-20 rule that, that, that you think about in relation to that great deal of consistency, things like uh, sort of our response to waiting lists needs to be reasonably consistent. Uh, but there's a lot of things we can do locally uh, to, to, I suppose, to build on the, the relationships that are there. We've got to engage with our, our local populations. We've got to understand their needs better. And we've got to ensure as well that the system that we create, I suppose, makes sense. Um, and I think it's about a, a much more communicative system. Uh, and we're keen to ensure then that in that communication, that people understand the decisions that are making that we are making as a system, that that they have an opportunity to to feed into those systems and indeed participate in those decisions, uh, and therefore that the the logic of some of this I think carries through from that. It's a very challenging position. Your discussion on waiting lists a moment ago is a reflection of that column, uh, but I think we recognise that the more we can offer that local authority. Uh, in, in each of our five areas, the more likely it is that we'll be more responsive and actually be able to, to provide the kind of support and care that's required, Colin. I'll maybe stop there at this point. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. And uh, finally then, um, Karen, go ahead, please. Thank you very much, Chair, and thanks for the opportunity to, to meet with the committee this morning. I understand you've got a massive agenda and, and significant issues that you're dealing with um, in addition to this. Um, I want to keep my comments brief, and I really just wanted to briefly highlight the areas of most concern to local government, and those have been touched on by Paul and, and Nicola um, earlier on in, in the presentations. Um, we at NILGA fully support the Minister in his drive to improve health and social care provision across the North, and we trust that these changes won't bring with them the unintended consequence of the exclusion of local elected members from commissioning discussions. Now, 
I know that Paul has as um, articulated that there's very much uh, a desire to make sure that there is better communication um, at local level to um, articulate need and, and, and to, to move that discussion upwards. Um, and we believe that um, councillors are fundamentally important in that part of, of, of the relationship. Um, we are certain that the input and scrutiny provided by the councillors and LCGs for well over a decade now has been a positive influence on every trust. Um, and we look forward to discussions with the department. I mean, Paul has referred to working with Nilga. We've got a meeting with um, Martina and um, Moore and Paul um, in mid-June. Um, and we want to discuss how we can help co-design future working arrangements in line with community planning priorities. Um, now, the community planning process is currently under review. And reviews of the plans of themselves are due soon. And that, this makes us a really good time to design and changes. We know we need to contemporise that uh, central local relationship and how that uh, impacts um, on people. Um, but our key priority today is really to ensure that locally elected members are materially and meaningfully involved in health commissioning activity. We want to avoid any development of a vacuum in arrangements. I think the concern with, whenever I met with the members of the um, LCGs that are, are elected members, um, there was concern that they weren't really sure what was happening, and maybe it's just because it's at a very early stage, and you know we, we need to to work more closely together going forward. But we would question the wisdom of any proposal or suggestion at this stage that would result in the formation of a separate forum for elected members as a sideline to the main conversations. And um, there's a concern there that they're going to sort of be uh, stuck in a room talking to each other and not actually involved um, in in the substantive discussions. So, I mean, as, as our health and social care provisions are transformed, the councillors from across the 11 councils will play a vital civic leadership role and ensure there's no, hopefully ensure there's no disconnect between the health sector, councils and local communities at this important time. Um, but we just want to add value to the picture and make sure that we can help improve going forward. Thank you very much, Chair. Okay, thank you to all, all of our panel and... Um, I think there's certainly a lot of things there of interest and a lot of things around which there is, I suppose, a consensus emerging. Um, and I, I was I was struck by some of the things that were said in relation to hearing the views of the of people on the ground. And I think that's that's really important. And also that the views of people on the ground would not only be heard, would, would be action, actioned and acted upon. Um, and I guess one of the concerns is around, and, and I also note um, in... In, in Nicola's contribution, that trust will also be at the table, um, and I suppose in terms of equality of arms and how how local how local uh, input into that would be managed, we're very conscious as a committee that the dissolution of the health and social care bill is being taken forward in legislation. However, there is nothing in the legislation to demonstrate what exactly we will be moving to. And actually, I think in the context of our discussion on waiting lists, we need to see this not as a technical process of, of, of uh, enacting a decision that has been taken around the Health and Social Care Board, but to see how we can add value and how the local commissioning or how the commissioning model going forward can contribute to this concerted action that needs to be taken on waiting lists. So what are your views, panel, on the, on the issue of in terms of how this legislation could be strengthened to ensure that uh, I have referred to before that you wouldn't move out of your old, your old home until you had seen the new house or indeed till you knew it was ready to move into? So what's your views in terms of how that process is managed within the legislation we're discussing today? 
Colin. Oh, go ahead, please. Yeah, okay. yeah, thank you. I mean, I, I take your point, uh, and I suppose, you know, it has been a, a challenging year for us in the last year, and, and we're really just getting back to this in, in recent months, uh, just in terms of what the new plan and model looks like. But I assure you, a lot of work is being taken forward in relation to that model, and we're developing kind of proposals and, uh, around it. So I, I don't think that, that, that it's that we don't know what we're moving to, but I appreciate the point about the bill. I suppose the, the bill is a, a technical requirement that the, the, the board must close uh, so and needs that that kind of uh, the bill in order to to facilitate that and a number of other related issues as we know but i assure you we're working hard on the the project board for the new plan and model talking to a lot of people and karen's already mentioned conversations with the likes of milga uh, to ensure that we i suppose we understand people's views uh, and make sure that what we do do construct is something that genuinely brings us all together and i think it's a, it's as much as possible the trend to find the right shape of things but ultimately, we know that the, the health and social care family, indeed the wider family, needs to be working much more closely together to maximise the resources that we have available to us and make sure that we're, we're providing the care that people require. Okay, thank you. And I suppose my, my second question then is to probably to, or it is, well, it is to Karen, uh, picking up on the point that you said that members have some concerns around maybe being uh, in a separate forum in another room and coming in late, and I think that clearly would be um, concerning. I have to say, but could you could you flesh out uh, what proposals members think should be uh, considered at this time to ensure that that doesn't happen, and to ensure that not only do we retain the local input, but actually we strengthen it. I mean, I, I think, um, Chair, um, that the value will be in how um, this uh, these plans are linked in with community the community planning process and how that 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 is really the um, the local um, steer for for where the priorities are. It's it's evidence. Our, our community plan, plans are evidence based, and I think that there has been much more. Um, Kind of uh, attention to detail at council level. There's much more maturity now in the conversations about health, and certainly, I mean, we, we know we've moved from a position where we're sort of fighting over where services are based to the fact that we need to get services on the ground completely. And we, we're there's an understanding at local level that we can't have every service everywhere. So, um, it's making sure that we have um the ability to involve the local members um in the discussions. Um, there's a, a number of different ways of doing that through the community plan of partnerships, through the integrated care mechanisms, which are yet to really surface in, in local government circles as a, a sort of a definite picture. And we're, it's, it's all quite nebulous for us at the moment. And it's, that's one of the reasons why it's, it's going to be such a valuable discussion um, with ourselves in June with Paul and Martina. Um, but I think as well to be aware of the fact that um, councils, meet regularly i mean you're talking earlier on about um a northern ireland executive committee approach to dealing with the health issues and um, there are regular meetings of the northern ireland executive ministers with representation from elected members from councils and um, within the political partnership panel the health minister has is, is a frequent attender at those and there are mechanisms there i mean Mike, uh, dr michael mcbride has been at, at that as well to to work very closely with councils regionally um, across Northern Ireland, um, but um, taking in the, the local situation. So there are mechanisms already there to meet with local government as a whole, um, and we would encourage the department to avail of those um, and to maximise the relationships with their elected members at that level, rather than duplicating any sort of um, arrangement, um, but making sure that elected members are involved 
um, substantively and materially um, within um, the other mechanisms, whether they be sub-regional or whether they be regional. And I mean, I'm delighted that Councillor Core and I think Councillor Malahan is, is, are both involved in the sort of um, regional coordination of the local commissioning groups and the chairs group there. Um, unfortunately, they were um, unable to be with us today and they stood back because there was a slight perception of a conflict of interest, which is why I have no elected members with me this morning. Um, it's uh, putting me in a, a bit of a difficult position because we're an elected member-led organisation. But um, certainly, we're, we're just I think our members are just keen to have the conversations, keen to work out what it is, where the, where the direction of travel is. And at the minute, I think it's, it's maybe a too early stage of planning to, to know. Thank you, Karen. And Nicola, you're looking to comment there as well. Um, I suppose it's probably really important when you're talking about the executive involvement and in all of this, because what is a recurring theme in most of the discussions about trying to fix the system that is currently broken is that we have a huge workforce issue in Northern Ireland, absolutely massive. Um, and that has come about as a result of years and years and years of, I suppose, what, what seems to be um, a lack of foresight planning as regards the number of graduates that we have coming out of not only the medical medical profession but nursing and the allied health professionals um, because every time we look at trying to set up a new service or improve a service the stumbling block is always the number of nurses the number of doctors the number of physiotherapists the number of all of these people that are going to be required to ensure that we actually have a good and vibrant health service in the years ahead we are now at a point where we have more jobs than people and that is never a good place to be because it means that if you advertise a post, you are lucky to get an applicant for it as opposed to being able to choose the best of the applicants that have applied for that job. It is virtually impossible to future plan a service if you cannot be assured that you're going to have the people to fill those posts. It's difficult to, I mean, we have a new medical school now in the Northwest and that is fantastic and that is going to, over time, improve the, the, the situation as regards the medical workforce. I know that there's a difficulty with GPs. We now have an average 2,000 patients per full-time equivalent GP. There is an increasing number of very, very, I suppose, complex um, patients with a wide variety of needs who may, some of them are maybe seeing four or five consultants in the hospital. And we are having to try and work with all of those different issues that patients have on a daily basis. Um, not only that, but GPs are being expected to take on roles now to try and ease the pressure on secondary care. We are really struggling with that. You know, without a vast increase in number of GPs, we're going to have difficulty to try and meet the needs of those po um, the population and ease the pressure on secondary care. Um, the, the fiscal power is, is a, another thing, I suppose. There's no point in, in telling an organisation to, to provide a service if they're not given the fiscal power that is required to actually meet the needs of the people that need that service. We're not talking about wants here, we are talking about need. Um, and I suppose as an executive, there has to be a, an awareness that that is going to increase over time. The, the health needs of this population, we have an aging population. We have, a, a, I suppose, unfortunately, our young people are still leaving these shores, so our taxpayers are leaving. If, if we could encourage some of those, more of those people to stay, then that would make a big difference in the overall health of our population. Because when we look at health inequalities, the, the, the swathe of people living in rural environments, they, they, they tend to be at the, the sharp end of, of health, I suppose, availability of health care for them. And also at poverty, deprivation, we have one in three people in the population here are, are, are could be, I suppose, defined as being in a, a group with deprivation. That has a huge knock-on effect on our health. So the executive, the responsibility of the executive is huge. Um, 
I suppose as a GP, it, you're one of the groups of people we can look at and think, oh, they have even more responsibility than, than we have to try and ensure the health of this population because fundamentally, the health of the people of Northern Ireland depends on their general well-being as much as their blood pressure or their blood sugar or anything else. Um, so the executive has a huge responsibility there to ensure that, number one, the general health of the population is improved by, by their the well-being, by educational um, accessibility to education, to having enough people being able to go through college and stay here. One of the ways we can improve the workforce, I suppose, quickly as opposed to looking at just the number of people going into these courses would be to incentivize our graduates to return. We have a huge number of our young people have left these shores to qualify as nurses, doctors, physios, occupational therapists, psychiatric nurses, but they've gone. They've gone down south or they've gone across to England, Scotland or further afield and they're not coming back. They're coming, you know, they're going out in a wave and they're coming back in drips. So in other parts of the UK, they use incentivizing schemes they help to pay off student loans or they give them financial incentives. We haven't actually looked at that direction, but that, that, again, that would need the support of the executive because that's it's an innovative way of bringing back people who are already qualified and who can hit the ground running. And that's if we want to get really on top of these waiting lists, we need to be bringing some of our qualified staff back into Northern Ireland and get them into our system and get them working in hospitals. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Nicola. And I think actually there's also scope in getting some of our qualified staff who haven't even left, but have simply left the health service as a result of life uh, in some cases. But I think there there is potentially more we can do to attract and support some of those people back into what are badly needed uh, positions. I mentioned earlier that we're looking at over 5,750 vacancies actively being recruited for uh, in the health service at the minute, which is unsustainable. Okay, listen, I'm going to go to members. I just do want to pick up before I go in relation to, uh, you know, um, Karen had mentioned there that, that some of it is nebulous. I think that goes to the heart of the committee's concerns. And I think um, I'd certainly be saying to Paul, I think the, the department should look at how the, the, the legislation in front of us is not in the least bit nebula, nebulous in that sense. It's very, uh, it's very clear. We have taken evidence that, that there's a potential here for a situation where you know, people could be marking their own homework in terms of performance and finances, and I'm, I'm also I'm also uh, conscious that 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 is um, something that I think I think the department need to look at, and, and it may it may it is made you that the, the committee may need to look at how we can add a substantive substantive planning into what's going to replace the uh, the 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 bill going the the HSC going forward, and how that commission model will look. So I'll leave it there. So at this point in time, I'm, I have a number of members indicating, first of all, our Deputy Chair, Pam Cameron, then Carol Nikillen, Orlea Flynn, and Paula Bradshaw in that order. So I'll go then back to Pam, first of all. Go ahead, Pam, please. Thank you, Chair, and uh, thanks to you, Nicola, Paul, and Karen, for your attendance at committee this morning. Apologies, I was dumped out there for a bit, so if this has already been covered, I do apologise in advance. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, in and around what consultation there's been uh, between the department and the chairs of the LCGs in relation to the Health and Social Care Bill, or um, otherwise maybe separately in respect of any revised structures, what sort of conversations have, have, have been had? So if someone wants to lead off on that, please. 
I suppose we have to, myself and Paul could both comment on that from from two two ends of this. We have had meetings with um, Martina Moore and with Paul um, as regards the the structures that are currently up and running and in place. And Stevie Four, as I um, one of the LCT chairs, has also been involved in the strategic framework planning group. Um, and Paul maybe has a, a better insight into the full extent of the um, the interaction between the department and the LCGs. Oh, Paul, you're on mute there. Oh, it's not. <laughs> um, so we, we've had, and over the next nine months, members of all the different LCDs are going to be involved in the planning stages um, in the different groups. There's five different strategic groups. Some of them are a little bit, I suppose, it's like the IT and communication and those those areas that, that we maybe won't have, um, that we won't have so much of an active input with. Um, but... The, the actual planning on the ground of, of services and how they're going to be commissioned and how they're going to be provided, um, the LCDs are going to have a very proactive role in those groups. I'm not sure Paul's... Sorry, sorry I'm not, I'm not so, sure what, what happened there, Colin. Yeah. Can you hear me now? I can hear you, Paul. And probably what it is, the system probably takes a few seconds uh, to bring you up into the into sorry. the sound. So that may be... So we'll, we'll just pause for a few seconds if we need to and see if that improves. So go ahead, Paul. So is it is working okay now, Colin? Sorry, maybe I clicked it yeah. too many times, yeah. Colin. I think that's what you're you're hinting at as who well. Who knows? Who knows that um, that could that could I, happen? I, I suppose as Karen's already said, Stevie Core, one of our our chairs, he chairs the the Belfast Local Commissioning Group as a member of the new Plan and Project Board. So so he represents the the kind of all of the five uh, LCG chairs on that project board, and he's been a very active member, a very helpful member as well, and has uh, also put a lot of uh, his time into the the framework that we're developing for this new planning model. So. I think LCG chair is well represented by Stevie, but also Martina. I attend all LCG chair meetings, uh, so we are having a constant conversation with, with LCG chairs, and from time to time, Martina joins, joins me at those regular LCG chairs meetings. So I think, Pam, there's been a lot of opportunities. I think we've we've been keen to, to look at both the positives and the negatives in relation to the LCGs, because we don't want to lose the things that have been good in the past, that, that integrated working, that partnership approach and so on, that link with community planning. But I think we know there have been limitations to that that kind of limitation of authority, sort of limited opportunities actually to, to bring more people into the decision making process and so on. So and I think, Colin, that's probably been, you know, an active process, an ongoing process. Uh, I think with LCG chairs and a lot more to do because I'm very keen as well at LCGs in this final year actually reach out to their constituencies, be it through the councillor members, community and voluntary sector members and so on, to talk to them about what is to come uh, as we're developing this new planning model. Thanks for that. Okay, thank can, I, can I just ask um, um, if you could tell me what stakeholders that are represented on the LCGs um, now that you feel would be most exposed to to loss of input, you know, in, in the new structures. Oh, you're mute again, Paul. Yeah. So just 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 give a second, time. maybe it's taken <laughs> there you okay. So it's I think it's just taken a few seconds for the administration to bring you in. Okay. It's a slightly right. new tweak on the system we're using okay. this morning, so there's probably a wee bit of bedding in problems. So you're you're uh, with us now anyway. Go ahead. Apologies, Colin. I'll be more patient. Um I mean I think Pam the the intention is uh that all the constituency who are, who are currently around the table continue to be around the table. Um, um, I think we're just we want to bring in the likes of community planning into that as well. 
we're looking at how best to kind of relate in general with local government, as, as Karen has talked about. But we're also thinking about it's not just about that table. It's about how we actually relate to our population and the, the variety of, of uh, interests in our population who might not be so directly involved in health and social care, but will have a, an interest, as we all do, in health and well-being. And I think because so much of this is about trying to get upstream uh, rather than always focusing on the very big problems in elective waiting lists and unscheduled care. I don't want to minimize them in any way, but I think we also know we've got to look at that sort of whole life uh, of our population and how we can do our best to, to kind of look at prevention and, and good health as much as uh, the, the kind of providing services when people require them. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Pam. I'm going to Carol then. Go ahead, Carol. Leon or I, let's just... Good, Carly. Um, so, uh, first of all, thank you for all your comments and even some of the submissions that have been put in. They're all very, very helpful. But unfortunately, as you will know, we've been having these conversations for a long time. Um, and the concern that I have is it's about that democratic an inclusive approach to going forward. Um, so, for example, not all community planning is at the same level across each council area, and that's a concern. The other issue is, so how can we ensure that the whole system approach takes into account the independence, the critical friend position, um, and even, you know, where, where will the voice of the community and voluntary sector be? And where will the voice of the democratic uh, elected representative be? That's one question. The other question I have is there's still an issue for me that hasn't been resolved around social care as well in this. Um, and commissioning, as you will know, despite all the good work, should be informed by need. So how can we ensure that it's not part of a different direction, either by professionals within health and social care or with political direction, that it's based on need? So th they would be my two concerns around this. I think, Cara, what, what you're saying is absolutely right and what comes up in a lot of the conversations. I mean, even when we're looking at ED attendances, which you think in some ways is a long way removed from care packages, but it actually isn't because when you talk to the casualty consultants, their problem is that they have people in, in the ED department that can't get beds in the hospital. They can't get beds in the hospital because there are people in those beds that can't get discharged because they need a care package. So suddenly... You just see that everything in healthcare is interrelated and social care, it's, it is like it's married together. So there's a huge impetus and a huge focus on trying to improve those. They, it's, it's vital that that is up there as one of the many, many competing priorities. But And I suppose the difficulty on the ground for health boards in the past, LCGs, health trusts, all of us really on the ground is trying to meet the needs of that full spectrum, realising that each has a knock-on effect on the other within the budget that is provided for us. That is the, that is the struggle. And Colm, you're right, we need to be accountable. Um, and we Yes, much as you say, we can't mark our own homework and that, that makes sense. However, what you don't want to do is make the system um, incredibly unwieldy because we spend all our time counting it. 
the different I mean I qualified over 30 years ago and there was much less counting done back then there was much less form filling done back then is the system any better with all the form filling and counting I'm not sure I honestly don't know um, but I know that uh, you know as you become more and more accountable it means more and more counting and um, what we don't want is for that counting to take up such a big slice of the budget it's for the care on the ground so it's trying to you know as well trust professionals to be professional as you know but also have them accountable without that accounting eating into our budgets for care that's really important too chair if i can maybe yep, just uh, uh, yep go ahead chair um it's, it's in relation to the point uh, Ms. McCullough made about the community planning uh, being at different levels I, I think that's a fair point and um uh, given her um uh, time and uh, 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 place as, as communities minister should be more than aware of the community planning review that's underway at the moment and um, we're, we're approaching the end of that we're uh, anticipating that um, there will be a presentation of the draft review, review report to um, the permanent secretaries and uh, chief executives group um, fairly soon and um, just to really be aware I mean one of the issues with community planning has been the, the resourcing and the ability to um, to use resources effectively between the organisations that are involved and hopefully the review will go some way to addressing that particular issue to make it more make community planning more effective. But what I would say is that at local at local level, um, we're talking about working across silos and I mean you're talking about working across silos within within health, which is like a, a, a multiplication of, of factors in itself. But I mean councils will be looking at local level to see how to uh, benefit their economies to see how to benefit um, the communities looking at schools looking at transport links and, and how to attract people to the communities which will then in turn um, hopefully um, attract people in, into areas uh, more rural areas like Fermanagh which is struggling with GPs as far as I'm aware um, to, to come to work and live and stay and, and if we can can do that in a more joined up fashion through community planning working with health and sort of look at what um, uh, what the shortages are and what, what we need locally and how do, you, how do you address those. I think that'll be a win-win for everybody. Chair, could I thank you for that, but could I also, just in terms of Paul, for example, you know, the the notion that we need to incentivize our health and social care staff, I think, needs to be part of this because we are losing staff to the private sector. And if you talk to the staff side representatives and indeed the trade unions, that they the, the felt that they've have been looked after very well, despite them looking after us and actually putting our lives at risk. So, for example, as part of local commissioning, are we looking at incentives? Are we looking at things like childcare vouchers, student loan arrangements, um, all the issues that you know have been accepted by other bodies, but. And I'm not saying it's, it's, it could be something that the minister has to decide upon, but how can we keep and rec not only recruit, but retain the staff that we have? Um, because that is going to be one of our biggest challenges going forward around commissioning. Thank you. 
Yeah, and and I think Carol, you know, it is the biggest issue, and and I agree with you as well. It's not just about recruitment; it is very much about retention. I think, Colin, the point you made earlier as well about bringing people back in who have who, who were working in the health service some years ago, perhaps have had a family and uh, sort of dropped out of the health service for a while, but we need them to come back in and support them to retrain and get their skills back up to where we need them to. Incentivization, we are open to. Why wouldn't we be? Um, I think the, the, some of the kind of the, the agreements that we have in place with with staff side, I think limits us a bit in relation to that. To be frank, but but I think we do have to do it, and I think Nicholas probably given us a good flavour of the of the benefits of that already, um, because we are losing out not not just to to, uh, to other parts of of the UK, but also uh, across the world, we're losing a lot of people to places like Australia and Canada and so on. Uh, and I think we've got to make it one. Uh, sort of there's got to be incentives we've got to also make it attractive to live here as well so that we can draw people in too and i think we know that we have a we we who all live here know how attractive it is to live here and how good the work-life balance can be but i think that there's there's a lot of challenges for us to sell that as well internationally so partly it's about recruitment partly about retention and, and partly it is about drawing those people in internationally because where we have gaps in our, our workforce which we'll not be able to fill just by people who are locally trained Okay, thank you. Thank you. And I'm going then to Orlea Flynn, Orlea Lanaray Lidahal. Gormi, I'll get to Colin and thank you to the, chair, the, the panel for um, your presentation. So I've maybe just um, a question for um, for each one of you, if you don't mind. So Nicola, um, <coughs> excuse me, you had mentioned in your opening remarks around the, you know, I suppose like the good role that the, that the LCG committees provide in the sense that um, you know, they're hearing from the voices from the people on the ground and then they feed that up the system. Um, but the fact that the trusts will also be at the table now, um, in your opinion, how do you think this is going to help or enhance um, the the current structures, um, you know, as they are now? How will that trust input at that level? How is that going to help that process, that important process as you laid out about, you know, getting um, people's feedback from on the ground and feeding that up? Um, do you want to cover that first, Nicola, or do you want me to do? Yeah, I, I can do that, Orla, no problem. Um, right. I suppose the the original arrangement was that the boards would commission the services from the trusts and the trusts would deliver the services. The difficulty then arose when the trust wasn't able to deliver those services. Um, what we all know is that the health needs are, are vastly increasing. Our staffing numbers, all the things we've been talking about, has made it very, very difficult for certain areas of the service to be actually um, applied and 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 rolled out and function especially in the pandemic is obviously so much of what should have been happening out out the window just because priority had to be on covid um so the the what was interesting even amidst the pandemic this no more silos group that was set up um was trust and primary care working together and that what was I suppose most apparent and that is when professionals get together around uh, a table to figure out a problem and how to solve it you've got that engagement from the start so what you don't meet then is that is objections or obstructions further down the line when you're you, you know you're not telling somebody to go and do something they've actually been part of the decision making process and that has made a massive difference in smoothing the pathways of patients who need the service um, because you've got professionals right through the service who've already um, made those decisions and agreed how that pathway looks and the shape of it and how it actually works on the ground. So my hope is that in the integrated care system, because the trusts are at the table, 
that all of these things, uh, they've got ownership of the decisions that are made and therefore they will have, you will get that willing participation. I mean, on a, a tiny little example of that is we have this, these monthly forums that are going to be set up now with those consultants in the hospital and GPs getting together to look at different issues that, pay, that we have getting our patients um, seen and sorted in the hospital. They're all going to be looked at now with us together and, and they're going to probably tell us what we're doing wrong as well, you know, or what they see us doing wrong. And we can think, right, okay, do you know what? It's easy for us to do this a different way that's going to make life better for you. Because when you're in different, it's called no more silos because it's very easy when you're in different silos to judge the other silo more harshly than is fair. So by coming together, we're going to hopefully open up pathways that are actually don't take that much more effort, but work an awful lot better for patients. Yeah, no, and I think I think that is really important. Just as you explained it out there, you know that you know the earlier that you're working together on an issue or a problem, you know the easier it hopefully it'll be to to sort of direct effect. And I don't know, I know it's slightly separate, but even with the the program of work that the department's carrying out with the Encompass system, you know, even in terms of technology and IT, mm-hmm. um, I, I, sometimes you would assume that these things were already linked up and whatever. So mm. hopefully the 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 Encompass with the the you know the reform of the IT system will also help them if you know physically and practically the the GPs and you know the the local committees are are working more closely with the trust so I hope I hope um I hope that it works out as as intended so thanks for the answer Nicola um and then Paul uh, maybe just to yourself you had spoke about so in terms of the new planning model um that you have a project board um set up and I'm just wondering. Um, could you tell me the the makeup, the membership of that project board, and then I know you were talking about so you are looking at um you know the, the the things that you would hope to retain, and then the strengths currently, and then obviously the things that, that maybe the the weaknesses in the system and things that you want to strengthen, and you did mention the the community planning with the councils, um but you had also referenced um understanding the needs of the population better. And, you know, I think that one is, is massive and it's how you actually do that, um, you know, in practical terms, because I know that we've been lobbying the minister for a long time now to, you know, to carry out a food needs analysis in terms of um, poor mental health, mental health crisis and drug and alcohol addiction to help try and, you know, resource and manage treatment for people in a better way. The department have told us recently that, um, you know, down to... Um, budgetary reasons that it wouldn't be you know it wouldn't be the most sensible uh, way to, to um do it wouldn't be the most sensible use of money at the minute to carry out that needs analysis so i'm just wondering in terms of the project board and if you are looking at that really important issue how do you is how do you is intend on you know carrying out that piece of work so what would be can you give us a flavor of what proposals or ideas you would be looking at to sure. try and address that um, so the project board first then. Um, so it's it's quite a, a wide group of people. It's it's people from Department of Health, from Health and Social Care Board, Public Health Agency, NICFA are, are there as well in terms of bringing a community and voluntary sector perspective. We have LCG chairs through Stevie Core, as we've already mentioned, who's also a councillor in Belfast, as you know. Um, so and, and then it's trying to get that kind of mix of people, so, you know, all those constituencies kind of coming together. So I should have also mentioned that 
uh, the GPs are, are represented there for through GPC as well. So it, it's a it's it's a very large group of people, and you know yourselves, these Zoom meetings uh, are great from a technology point of view, but actually managing those meetings when you might have as many as forty people involved uh, can be quite challenging. But going as well as, as we, we can hope at this stage. But as I've already said, and, and Karen has mentioned, you know, we're also reaching out because at this stage, that project board is designed to kind of start putting the framework in place, start to, start working through the various work streams that we need to take forward. Um, but uh, but we need to widen that out quite soon. And we are hopeful uh, that over the next kind of six months, we'll begin to see those kind of local sort of groups begin to, to set up as well. Uh, so that would certainly be, if all goes to plan, uh, our intention over the next number of months. I, I think the point about the strengths and weaknesses is, a, is an important one. Uh, you, what's, what's good about LCGs right now is that local intelligence. Uh, I think Nicola really, in terms of some of the examples that she's already mentioned, you know, that local intelligence, that opportunity for, for something to come from the ground right into the, the decision makers is, is a good way of beginning to actually spot where the problems are. And also it's an early alert to and where the problems are because we, be, we, we see that at an early stage, things that could be done differently. And I think what we're hoping is that we, we just strengthen that and improve on it because the priorities of each of those people, the priorities of someone who's using a service is going to be quite different from the priorities of a consultant who's delivering a service, for example. Uh, but it's trying to, to put as much equity into that and begin to think about the sort of the experience of sitting in a hospital waiting room is as important in terms of trying to resolve the problems as it is the challenge of seeing enough patients in a day and so on. So that's why we're keen to create some kind of a suppose an equity in those kind of local groups, the, those integrated uh, care systems, that people can begin to actually pr uh, sort of highlight the things that are of most importance to them, and we can begin to work through those. So that that's part of actually the needs piece as well. It's not a, a, a sophisticated part of it, but it's just about people talking together. Elected representatives are very good at that as well, as you know, because you're talking to so many of your constituents that you bring forward a lot of those uh, sort of issues, which, to be honest, we, we can be, not be cited on because we're just not close to, the, to some of the things on the ground. And I think and it's picking up a bit on, on your previous question with, with Nicola as well, uh, because I think one of the things that we hope is that we're moving towards collective accountability. And that, that's, a, that's a big challenge for the system, and I wouldn't want to underestimate it. And it comes back to the point Nicola's making in relation to silos. We need to, if these integrated care systems are to work, people need to share the problem and share the solution and, and then actually be, be accountable then for how that goes thereafter. So that's where we're moving. Maybe in the first year, we'll not quite crack that. Uh, but I think we've got to get there. And it's where the, and it's the point where, you know, trusts have a, a very challenging job to do, as we all know, such diverse services. Um, they need to be held accountable, I suppose, to the services they deliver. But the wider system needs to also work with the trusts and support the trusts to, to deliver on the services they need in the same way that kind of, as Nicola described it, the pointing fingers that goes on between trusts and GPs and so on. We need to get to a point where actually it's a shared problem. The challenges facing the GP today uh, are the challenges that trust also needs to get their head around because if the whole system doesn't function, you just end up with people defaulting to an emergency department, as we know. So it's the, that collective accountability comes with that kind of authority. Um, and, and, and I think the system still needs to be managed. So I don't think it's that people are, are kind of talking to themselves and holding themselves to account. They also need to be held to account. The minister will still has his prerogatives and the priorities that he wants to drive through the system. So they will need to also negotiate that in terms of how they'll deliver on those as well. So it is very challenging. And as for the, I think the needs assessment piece, 
I think there's a there's a piece of work for us to do in relation to, to needs assessment. And uh, we've done some of it in the past with population plans and so on. So there are methods of doing it. We've been talking to the King's Fund as well uh, in London. We have a lot of experience in this space and are also working with the integrated systems, uh, integrated care systems in England. So we, we think there are ways of doing this. And we do think community plan has already actually sort of worked through a lot of this. We think we have a lot to learn and a lot to learn and to draw on. If you think about the engagement exercises that community plan and partnerships went through a few years ago, and while I take Karen's point about you know we've we've that we're going to have to kind of get a great deal more consistency across the eleven areas. The flip side of the coin is there's a huge amount of intelligence there already. How are we going to draw on that and draw it in? So I don't think it's always starting from scratch again and going out and doing the, the kind of the big consultations. That is part of it, but it's also using what we already know and beginning to actually put that into, into some kind of a shape where, where it actually makes a difference to the way that we provide health and social care. No, that's great, Paul. Thanks very much. Okay. I'm going to have to move on. I'll try to go back to you for that last question if I can, but I'm going to have to move on to other members just, no, to, no just to ensure that everyone gets in. Okay, and, and uh, you could put your question in maybe in writing if I don't get back to you, and I'm sure the panel would come back to us on that. So I'm going to go to Paula, and then I'm going to go to Chiara, and that's the last two indications they have at this point in time. So go ahead, Paula, please. And thank you, Chair, and thank you, panel, for your contributions this morning. Um, my first question is to yourself, Paul, and it's really off the back of my comments at, at the start of the committee meeting this morning, and that's around accountability um, for the money that flows from the Department of Health through the Health and Social Care Board into the trust for the Commission services. Um, you know, we, we are paying as taxpayers for the trust to deliver certain um, procedures, um, programs, etc. Where is the accountability in terms of making sure that the money um, is spent correctly? What is the penalty if it's not done? And how do you think that this new health and social care bill could enhance and, and create that um, greater link between what we're paying for and what's actually delivered? That's the first question. Thank you. Sure. Um, I mean, we currently have uh, things that are called service and budget agreements, uh, Paul, which you, you might be aware of, SBAs as they're called for short. Uh, and those are designed to ba basically agree every year the, the volumes that we would expect to, to receive, both in, in terms of elective care and also in, in terms of, of social care as well in a number of aspects. So it's, they're quite a wide reaching. But they're challenged by things like kind of vacancies and so on. So you know, the trust, if the trust had all of the, the staff in place that, the, that the, the money was designed for, they would be able to deliver to that level. But the reality is because they don't, we, we fall short uh, of what we're capable of. Um, and I think that that remains a big challenge for us. And we've been looking, obviously, in the trust rebuild plans, which you'll be aware of, at, at how we actually square that circle in some way with a, with a COVID prism. Because we know as well that even on our best day, COVID is restricting us in terms of the amount that we can deliver. Although the good things we've been doing for kind of virtual um, sort of you know, consultations and so on, which has at least kind of given us a bit more back. Sorry, um, Paul, sorry Paul just, just to go back a little bit because I just sure. want to understand this. So the, the services are, are commissioned. So as you say, there's a, broken down into numbers and sometimes they don't hit the numbers because of the vacancies. What happens to that money? Is that given back? 
We haven't the, been delivered 100, we only delivered 80, so there's 20 there, so they give the money back. What happens it's, to the money? It's, it's not given back because sometimes the trust, for example, are having to employ locums, which are a lot more expensive than, than what the money was designed for as well, Paula. So you, it, it is a very difficult picture and a challenging picture, uh, but the, the money doesn't really come back. Sometimes trust will, will use the money that they have to maybe access a, a service in the private sector to actually ensure that those patients receive uh, the care in as timely a way as they possibly can. But it is a challenge picture and because of those additional costs from the likes of locum and agency staff and so on it limits the opportunity for us to say well if you can't deliver that we'll just take the money back because the reality is the trusts are, are probably having to pay higher rates in some circumstances uh, and possibly higher rates with it, the private sector as well so it, it's a challenging picture paula there there is a, a process to, to to scrutinize that but ultimately you know penalties are challenging in this kind of space because, because there are other costs to try and even deliver some of the, the capacity that we'd like to see delivered through the likes of locum and agency. Okay, no, I appreciate that. And I suppose it's not penalties per se, it's more about the fact that we have the waiting lists um, coming out this morning. So uh, it's the commissioning services to actually to meet, to meet the demand. But I'll move on because my second question relates to the second part, and I think it's towards Nicola there, and that's around the question or the issue you'd raised about incentivizing staff and the use of agency staff, as you've mentioned there, Paul. Uh, de declaring interest, my daughter's applied to do um, occupational therapy in England and we very much assume that she won't come back at the far side of it. I hope she does. But whenever um, the paediatric pathology unit was moving, the service was moving over to Alderhey or the, uh, the, the arrangement was, I asked the Health and Social Care Board at that point, why can you not greater provide greater incentive and an enhanced salary, etc.? And I was told that in many ways it was because of the coupling with the agenda for change, um, national framework, and other um, pay. So, it, 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 in the interest of, of not paying so much to agency staff and, and other pressures, should we be thinking about decoupling from the agenda for change um, network so that we can be more agile here in Northern Ireland and not spend so much money on locums, etc.? Yeah, I mean, I think, Paula, it's funny, I was just looking at the letters I'd written a couple of years ago to your members of your um, the executive regarding the medical school in Derry. And at that time, there was £22 million a year spent on locums in hospitals alone. And I'm sure it's it's even higher than that now. Um, and I, I would probably, on average, a locum, and if you include the cost of the agency as well, you are probably talking about two to three times the cost of having a, a contracted doctor in the same position. And I'd say it's the same. You could extrapolate that out to nurses and, and, and any other allied health professionals. So not only do, is it more expensive to employ locums, but it's also you can't plan a service based on locum cover. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. If we really want to future plan our services, we need to have contracted staff working on us uh, in our system and it becomes there's a domino effect as well once a department is short-staffed it gets even harder to retain staff in that same department so it's already under pressure and then more people leave and, and eventually then the, the department can collapse and, and then that specialism moves elsewhere um, and I suppose one of the advantages of having um, these elective care um, have a regionalized approach to elective care is that you can have a good body of staff in one specialism in one place, trying to have that dotted around Northern Ireland has is not working because I mean when you look at it, you used to be again 30 years ago when I started, there was two surgeons in Alton Galvin, and between them they did it. Well, sorry, four, four surgeons, and between them they did everything. Now you've got so so much subspecialization 
that those surgeons they're highly skilled and if i want my heart surgery done i want a specialist to be doing that heart surgery if you want your mother to be getting bowel surgery you want somebody that's the best possible surgeon in that area so that's that's the right direction to go but it, it causes practical and strategic issues on the ground where we need to each of those surgeons actually needs a group of similarly skilled surgeons around them not only to, to make sure that they keep up their skills to that high level but also because they are then on rotas at night and one of the issues that we're finding is that if you have a hospital with two or three subspecialized surgeons they're reluctant to be on call for general surgery and rightly so because a bowel surgeon can't get called to and, and expect to operate on a vascular issue at two o'clock in the morning so you know when you have these sub subspecialties um you need to to have a, a good number of those people together so that that causes a problem in somewhere as small as northern ireland as well um but without that we don't have a service that's going to be future proof that's going to be high quality for our patients so incentivizing people to come and work here making sure that we have enough staff i know that the areas that tend to do the best are the areas where they actually you know on the surface of it, it would nearly seem that they're over recruiting for a department but that way you get a good robust healthy workforce that's that's happy to stay in what my experience of healthcare and primary care is there isn't really any such thing as a as a there's every day is a busy day but there isn't any such thing as an overwhelmingly busy day unless we're understaffed as soon as you're understaffed you start to feel overwhelmed and the problem in the health service um is that when you are feeling overwhelmed or when the work is is just too much for the staff that are there it becomes actually dangerous lives are at risk in that instance it's you know and it's bad in any line of work if you're too busy for the demand that is that's that's stressful but in healthcare it's actually dangerous as well so we you know we need to make sure that our staff are supported so that they can go into work and feel that they're providing a safe service because once people feel that they're that with the best intentions and with the best will in the world, the service they provide at times because they are so busy isn't safe. It's like if you're somebody sitting in, a, in an ED waiting room for 12 hours, that's inherently not safe. You know, if, and if the staff are so busy and run off their feet that they are looking after too many people, that's not safe. So we have a responsibility to make sure that where acute care like that is happening, there is enough staff. Thank you very much, Paul. Okay. Thank you, thank you, Paula. And and actually, just I have to say, and I will declare my own interest as having worked in a social worker and uh, in 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 one of the teams. And even even without staff uh, vacancies or people going off, the team that I worked with in within the South Tyrone area, the older people's team, the caseload in that team was increasing year on year by five and six percent. And that wasn't being commissioned for at all. That was just incrementally going on to the staff. Uh, year on year, so I, th I think there's a huge issue. That aging population issue is is a massive one that yeah. we need to consider as well. Uh, yeah, so, Chiara, please. Sorry, can I just make one point? Go is ahead, it, Nicola. Go ahead. What I yeah. do know is that sometimes there there is an announcement of an increase in the health budget, and it's always obviously it's always welcomed. The difficulty is if if there's an increase in wages at the same time as that increase in budget, that's not ring fenced. You know that the. the People will expect if there's a billion pounds extra put into the health service, they'll expect a billion pounds extra of care. But if at the same time we increase wages and that takes a big percentage of that money away, that again reduces the care. So in some ways, if the money for wages was ring fenced, aside from the care money, I know the two are related, but it can kind of muddy the waters as people's perception of what services can be provided. So when if there's, um, you know, if there's an agreed increase in pay and we're all agreed 
that nurses need to get paid better, that all the people working in the healthcare service need to get paid adequately to keep them and retain them. But maybe their wages needs to, that whole budget needs to be ring-fenced aside from the service that's being provided for patients because otherwise the population suddenly feels, oh my goodness, sir, the health service got that extra billion. How come we're not doing so many extra operations and everything? So it, it, it's maybe if the wages budget was separate from the service budget, it might be clarify things for the population as regards where the service should be going. Okay, okay. Thank you, Nicola. Chara. Uh, Go ahead, Chair, please. Thank you, Chair, uh, and thank you to the panel. Good morning. Uh, I welcome your contributions here and your comments today. And I especially welcome, Nicola, your comments there on staff, um, psychological support and well-being. Um, I know in my own conversations, um, there's certainly a feeling of uh, being very overwhelmed due to the last year. So just to welcome your comments there. Um, for myself, um, I'm an MLA in a very rural constituency uh, based in the Northwest. Um, and I have real concerns um, about uh, perhaps sometimes rural voices feel overlooked in decisions already. Um, and I'm just wondering, as we look forward, um, what kind of ideas do you have as a panel surrounding uh, the inclusion of rural voices? Uh, for, for example, the Women's Network, uh, the Rural Women's Network and um, the Rural Community Network, uh, just because oftentimes they already feel overlooked and there is that fear uh, moving forward, even rural representatives will have uh, less of an input. Thank you. Paul, do you want to? Column, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do, just ahead, maybe, maybe an example, Karen. More than anything else, because I fully agree with you, and we've got to you've got to strike a balance in terms of reaching out to people. I mean, you know, uh, as a sort of a, a rural MLA, as you've, as you've as you've said, that it is challenging providing services in rural areas. You know, a lot of our services increasingly are being provided in urban areas, but we've got to strike that balance, and that balance still has to make sense. We've got to support people to live at home as much as we possibly can, and provide the social care in particular uh, to to ensure that. I think. I think what we've been doing, for example, about a year ago, I was still the assistant director uh, working in the Western area, the commission and lead for the Western area. So rurality is something that I'm very uh, sort of mindful of. And we would we would have always worked over the last number of years with the rural community networks in the West. Uh, and they would have actually at, at various points sort of reached out to community organizations and so on on specific issues. Sometimes it was older people's needs. Sometimes it was children's needs, you know, a, a whole mix of issues I suppose, because we were constantly trying to, to find ways. So we've got to use those to the intermediary bodies like rural networks, like rural community groups and so on to, to reach out because we're too far away from the ground. I mean, I, I would like to say I'm, I'm really sort of hooked in and so on. I'm not, but I know a lot of people who are we've got to begin to work with those people who are well hooked in yourselves as well i think as, as uh, elected members uh, be it mlas be it councillors mps and so on you you're having constituency sort of discussions which again we've got to draw on that intelligence and and, and in terms of our decision making but we're very fortunate in northern ireland as you know we have a really strong community and voluntary sector it's weak in some parts of the rural areas i wouldn't say it's consistent across the piece but largely we've a, we've a pretty strong vibrant sector We've got to work with them and find ways to, to for them to help us to reach out to people so we fully understand their needs. Thank you, Paul. I just I, I recognise the complexity of health issues already, but then also that rural dynamic definitely makes them more difficult. So thank you for doing that. If, if I can maybe just come in on that as well, Chair. Um, certainly, you know, the councils, particularly you know, Manoma and, and Derry City and Straban, this district council are very uh, attuned to rural issues and, and issues that rural people face. Um, and with community planning arrangements and local uh, working arrangements, 
you know, there, there is attention paid to local district electoral areas that have got that rural focus. Um, I think, though, um, I would really just like to comment on um, the situation in relation to COVID. Um, and we have really seen um, an uplift in um, how um, government bodies and, and councils are working with um, individuals and, and communities at local level in rural areas. And the, the, the um, improvements to broadband communication have been um, instrumental in, in that. Um, we've seen, and we've also seen uh, the councils working very closely with community groups, sports groups, and and sort of having that local uh, communication and and community activity to assist in building, um, particularly mental health and well-being at, at local level. And those conversations, those relationships, whether that be um, over Zoom or whatever, or or directly in a socially distanced litter pick, for example, you know, all of those relationships are very are key to what uh, Paul has been talking about about that local knowledge and ownership. Of, of issues at local level. I was in a meeting earlier on in the week with a, a planning officer from Highland Council um, in Scotland and I think if we think we've got problems with rurality I mean having a look at the, the map of population spread for the Highland Council was, was quite um, alarming really um, and again that reliance on new technology and, and the ability to access that is, is, is going to be key to how we move on going forward I think. Thank you, Karen. Uh, I do note that certain community groups uh, within my constituency are trying to, to teach um, the elderly population uh, digital literacy yeah. and to help combat that, that loneliness specifically in the rural areas. So that's a great point. Thank you. Yeah, I think, I think one of the things we, we had discussed early on in the pandemic, Cara, was having, you know, the outpatient appointments for everybody. It's, it's funny because with lockdown, the rurality actually became there was less there was more equality because even if you were living in a, an urban development you were still you know it, it felt like you, you were detached from the, this, the big centers yeah. so uh, some of the discussion was actually facilitating having those using technology using broadband to have outpatient appointments you know even consult outpatient appointments because and that that was one of those things that we thought the pandemic brought to us um, was that we could keep that for the longer term so that somebody that's living in rural Fermanagh doesn't have to travel 100 miles to go and see a doctor that takes 10 minutes, you know, and they could actually just, it was just for a medication review, it could all be done on, over um, over the internet. So there's definitely been some positives have come out of this pandemic for rural areas. I think, again, the incentivizing schemes, Karen mentioned the Highlands, and that's one of the things that I know. My, my son's a doctor in England and my daughter's a physio. I'm raging. I would love to get them back. And, and I couldn't believe it whenever my son says, yeah, well, he says, if some of my student loan had been paid off for me for coming back to Northern Ireland, I would have come back. I thought, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> but, and, you know, it's, it's these little things. And we kind of, we, sometimes we think of doctors as being, oh, sure, look, why would they need more money? But these guys, they come out of college with 50 and 60,000 pounds of student debt. And they, you know, they are, they don't earn that much for the first five or 10 years of their life. So it, it's, you know, not that much would make a big difference to them and incentivize them to come home. And the really good thing about these guys coming home is they will stay. You know, when we when we try and incentivize people from other places to come here that aren't originally from here, they'll come for a couple of years and then they'll go back home again. Um, and I think for rural areas in particular, they're always ending up at the sharp end. We know that in, in Fermanagh, the southern half of the Western Trust is just they've seen more GP practice closures, I think, than anywhere else in Northern Ireland. They are absolutely a desperate place altogether. Um, so if you have enough of a pot of people that that will benefit everybody and if you can incentivize people to go to the rural areas which are beautiful places to live chances are once they get settled there they will stay but it's that initial um attracting them to those areas that's important 
Um, I think during the pandemic as well, the, in the, we now have multidisciplinary teams within primary care, and there was a lot of interaction between them and the community and voluntary sector for bringing food parcels to people's homes and you know really that kind of bread and butter stuff on the ground. Um, so DP practices, um, pharmacies, all of those things are vital in rural areas. They are they're part of the network and the fabric of those societies. Thank you, Nicola. No, I thank you. Okay. Oh. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, listen, thank you. Thank you very much to the panel for coming. And I know we've heard reference to Stevie Carr there a few times. We were hoping to hear from Stevie this morning. And I think that is a perspective that, that would be very interesting. And indeed, potentially, Kjahal Mullahan, in terms of experience of the LCGs and how that might contribute to uh, to the work we're, we're engaged in. I am struck by, you know, I think there's a great deal of harmony around what it is that's going on at the minute. Although the fact that the review and the project, the project boards are looking into these things now, I think that would have been more useful had that been able to feed into the bill. Because in a sense, I think we're all on the same page in, and, and everyone is, is, is thinking the same things. And in that sense, we're all on the same page. But unfortunately, an awful lot of it is not on the page that matters which is actually the legislation. And I suppose, you know, I'm struck in our part of the world, we have, we have a saying that eating bread is soon forgotten. And I don't, I don't, I don't say that out of any sense of that, that anybody would do anything deliberately, but just pressure takes over. And we are dealing with a bill here, which is removing some of the functions and then we don't see the clear. So I think, I think Paul in particular, I think that's something that, that should be um, considered as to how this might be as to how this might be improved you have a quick comment on that and can you commit to looking into that for us i mean colin i assure you the the moment we can share this information with you we will we're working it through we're working at pace as well uh, we believe that we are close to having a new plan and model uh, which which will i think provide you with the kind of reassurance you have colin and as soon as possible we'll be coming back to the committee in relation to that uh, and i and i don't think that it's the intention to you know take down the, the current house without having the other house in place at the point that we need it so our hope is in, in coming weeks indeed colin that, that we'll see that progressing at pace so i hope that'll provide you with the insurance uh, assurance you require sure, okay. I, I, I appreciate that yeah yeah uh, go ahead Sharon. If you need to remain fleet of foot with the health sector, which I think we do at the moment, um, I'm not sure that putting a, a, a definitive um, format for a, a new um, model into the legislation is maybe the best thing to do because it's a primary bill. Um, it may be a case of having a, an associated document rather than actually putting um, the, res the, the results of it into the primary bill. Yeah. I think we're doing that, Karen, is my kind of sense column, but I agree with Karen, yeah. Okay, okay, you're breaking up a bit, Karen, but we've got the gist of that, but, um, so, well, okay, well, listen, come back to us, we do, we do certainly think that, that there is a merit and value in looking at how we strengthen it in that regard, however that, however that may be done. So I want to thank you all for attending this morning, appreciate your, your insights and your answering of members' questions, and wish you all just the best of luck in the time ahead, and thank you. Thank you. Bye now. Okay. Thanks, Karen. Thank, thank, thank you. Thanks, Keith. Thank you, members. So, members, we will, we will, we will do maybe a wrap up when we've had the other session. We, we are obviously are here now from some of the professional organisations in relation to the bill as well. So we'll maybe come back after that. But for now, I'm going to take a, a very quick break here uh, for ten minutes. So, could members please return at eleven twenty? Thank you. And Clerk, uh, can I just check that people are, are brought out of the spotlight or no, 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 that's that right, session is suspended in that sense?
what will happen is we'll drop you down into the audience and then I'll um, remain in with my camera and microphone off. Okay, thank you, Clark.
sure that's us ready Hi, now with, with members there and all the next witnesses are ready. So that's us live again. Okay, thank you, Clerk. And members, just to confirm that that is us uh, back into our session today. Um, so we're now moving on to our second substantive briefing on the Health and Social Care Bill. And this is a briefing, um, an oral evidence session on the Health and Social Care Bill. Copies of the relevant submissions are at tab 6.1 to 6.3 of your pack. And we are hearing today from BASWA, NI, the British Association of Social Work, British Dental Association and Community Pharmacy, NI. So I would now like to welcome uh, in order, Ms. Carolyn Yurt, who is Director of the Association of Social Workers. Carolyn, can you hear us there okay? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yep, hearing you there, Carol. Thank you. We are also joined from Baswa by Mr. Andy McLenahan, Communications and Public Affairs Officer with, uh, with Baswa. Good morning, uh, Andy. Are you able to hear us okay? I can, sir. Good morning. Thank you very much. And we're joined by Mr. Jared Green, uh, who's Chief Executive of Community Pharmacy NA. Good morning, Jared. Can you hear me? Good morning, Chair. Yes, I can hear you. Thank you. And Miss Caroline Lappin, who is Chairperson of the BDA. Caroline, can you hear us? Andy, good morning, Chair. Thank you. And finally, Mr. Tristan Kelso, who is Director of the BDA. Tristan, can you hear us okay? Again, indeed. Good morning. Thank you. So listen, thank you all. And very many of you actually have been with the committee before in, in other roles. And you're very welcome and good, good to see you all back again. Appreciate your uh, assistance in terms of providing evidence to the committee. Uh, can I point out to, and I remind all members that sound quality is improved with the use of a headset. And also if members can ensure that they are on mute when they're not contributing. And if, if panel could also bear in mind that it may take a second or two before you're brought into the spotlight. So if you could just, I suppose, delay for a second or two. And I, I would like to ask all all attending the meeting to be conscious of background noise or typing around and that does come through quite clearly at times. So if members can watch that. I'm conscious we have a very experienced, a very uh, expert panel in front of us today. And I want to be sure to get the best out of the time that we have with you and uh, in recognition of you of you taking time with us this morning. So I would ask all members to be as brief and as focused as possible with your questions. We have also uh, eaten into our time with a very substantial discussion earlier on in, in waiting lists, which we're all concerned about. So if I could ask members to be very, very succinct in terms of their question, if I could also ask panel members, maybe if one member of the panel could identify who's best place to answer a particular question and only come in if it's something additional or something essential, indicating we'll, we'll try to get you in. I'll try to keep an eye on everyone everyone as we go along. Um, so, and, and the other thing I'll say just to members, if, if the question that you have asked you don't feel is, is being directly answered and you want to... Uh, Cut that short if members could indicate that themselves because it's not always easy to know if, if the answer is on the track that you were you were seeking. So I'll I'll uh, ask members to manage their own time in relation to that and we try to get through as many of the questions as we can. So um could I ask each of you then to give a brief a brief introduction as again in light of time as brief as possible, please. And what I'll do is just I'll go back through the order in which I brought you all in. Um for convenience. Uh, so I'll go to yourself, Carolyn. Go ahead, please. 
Sorry, before before you start, Carolyn, before you start, I should declare my own interest as as having worked as a social worker previously and uh, on on a leave of of uh, leave of a career break with one of the trusts here. So I just want to declare that interest up front as well. But that's not why I'm bringing you in first, Carolyn. It's because you're first on my list. So go thank you. go around, please. Go ahead. Thank you, Chair. Uh, and thank you for the opportunity to present Basma Northern Ireland's views on the Health and Social Care Bill. Uh, Basma Northern Ireland is the professional association of social workers. We have 22,000 members across the UK employed in frontline management, academic and research positions in all care settings. I want to be clear from the outset of this briefing, Basma Northern Ireland does not oppose the bill's intended aim of closing the Health and Social Care Board and the transfer of functions to the Department of Health and the Health and Social Care Trusts. However, the association is concerned about the department's lack of transparency concerning the plans and its failure to meaningfully engage with key stakeholders in relation to them. The association also questions the extent to which the closure of the board will succeed in delivering the reduction in bureaucracy, increase in accountability and improvements in efficiency, noted as key drivers for the planned restructuring. As the explanatory and financial memorandum published to accompany the bill explains, the then Department of Health, Social Services and Public Safety conducted a consultation on policy proposals to close the Health and Social Care Board during the period 15th of December 2015 to the 12th of February 2016. Basman Northern Ireland has significant concerns regarding the consultation process and the use of the consultation findings to justify the closure of the board. In the section of the Getting the Structures Right consultation headed New Structures, the proposals made by the department are unhelpfully vague. While the document stated former Minister Hamilton's intention to close the board, the department did not provide specific detail concerning the options it intended to pursue. Save for explaining functions of the board would go to either the department, the public health agency or the trusts. Perhaps of greatest concern is the fact that of the 151 responses to the consultation question asking whether consultees agreed with the proposed structural changes, 62% disagreed or strongly disagreed with the proposal and only 19% agreed or strongly agreed. Despite Basma Northern Ireland responding to the consultation and the department's acknowledgement in its consultation analysis report that it provided insufficient detail to enable stakeholders to adequately assess the appropriateness of the structures proposed to replace the board, the association has been involved in no further consultation on the matter and has received no additional information regarding the department's plans. Basma Northern Ireland is very concerned that the department has since introduced the legislation that we're discussing today to radically alter health and social care commissioning and governance structures based on this consultation. The association believes that this indicates a lack of regard for the views of the stakeholders involved. The permanent transfer of functions currently delegated by the board to the trusts does not in itself lead to concern. Based on the information currently available, it is not expected that this will have any direct impact on the delivery of services. What is of concern in relation to the transfer of functions, however, is the department's failure to communicate the implications of the draft legislation with the social work profession. 
Engagement with Bansman Northern Ireland members, including social works and senior leadership positions, indicates a lack of transparency on the part of the department concerning the transfer of functions. To ensure any potential confusion is avoided, it is essential that the department explains clearly and unambiguously precisely which functions will transfer and where they will go. Relying on social workers to unpick the content of draft legislation to find this clarity does not meet the standards of transparency as Northern Ireland expects the department to uphold. The department has also argued the bill's transfer of duties and responsibilities previously held by the board to the department will result in clearer lines of accountability and performance management and therefore a reduction in bureaucracy. While Basma Northern Ireland supports all possible improvements in terms of oversight and efficiency, our members query whether the planned restructuring will yield the intended results. I and Andy will be happy to provide further details in relation to this or any other issues that I've raised in this introduction and I thank you for listening. Thank you very much, Carolyn. So I uh, I will go then. So I presume you have spoken on behalf of, of Baz with there, Carolyn. Go then to Jared Green, Chief Exec of Community Pharmacy MA. And I go ahead, Jared Lindholm. Good morning, Chair and members. And thank you for affording me on behalf of Community Pharmacy MI this opportunity to speak to our submission on this bill. As most of you are aware, CPNI represents community pharmacy contractors in Northern Ireland in negotiations with board and the department on services and pharmacy contractual arrangements, including remuneration and reimbursement. Community pharmacy is one component of the family practitioner services, which is currently underutilized, but which has clearly demonstrated its central role in public health and primary care service provision, something that has come sharply into focus with its response during COVID. This has been clearly recognized by the current health minister, Mr. Swan, and indeed, with the very or through the very high level of public confidence in the sector. Therefore, these proposed changes and their outworking must not jeopardize the important community pharmacy service and indeed the wider health service, but certainly from a community pharmacy perspective that we provide to patients. And the, and the transition must facilitate and support continued development in order to deliver further innovative services and maximize this key frontline health and social care resource at the closest level to patients and communities. Turning to the bill, and as an overarching comment, CPNI feels, and it has been widely articulated throughout, that there is simply not enough detail to fully understand what the impact on pharmaceutical services as well as wider health services will be as a result of the bill. In terms of commissioning, the health minister referred in the assembly to a new way of planning services. And a key part of that process will be to take on the learning from local commissioning groups and bring forward a mechanism to ensure the continuation of local input. We agree that the current commissioning model is not as effective as it could be, and it is too complex for a patient base of this size. It is essential that any new health and social care commissioning process is capable of understanding, appreciating and harnessing the strengths of community pharmacy to improve access and quality of services to patients. It is essential that the local voice and the expertise available to the process of commissioning primary care services will be retained and enhanced and that there will be appropriate access to experienced people 
to mediate inadvertent ill-thought-out policies. CPNI would ask for clarity on details of these new processes and mechanisms and request that there are assurances given that stakeholders, including CPNI, are fully consulted on any proposals in respect of these. In terms of the budgetary and service provision, while the bill does not deal with funding per se, CPNI is concerned that there is a possible risk of budgetary and service provision being delegated in part to trusts. Trusts can be detached from the primary care and preventative healthcare needs of patients and the need for services provided by community pharmacists. Additionally, trusts may see an opportunity to offset secondary care budgetary deficits through reduced FPS funding allocations to which they may have access to going forward. It will be critical that funds earmarked for community pharmacy are ring-fenced so as to protect them from reallocation elsewhere. And it is critical that the department is specific when giving directions to the HSE Trust regarding the allocation or use of funds for pharmacy services. The bill indicates that market entry appeals will be dealt with in future by a prescribed body. It would be essential that CPNI is consulted on the composition of that body. In general, Continuity of community pharmacy services and retaining the unique value of the Northern Ireland Community Pharmacy Network in supporting patients and the health service must be maintained and enhanced in the transfer and transitioning of HSCB functions to the department. We would encourage senior department officials who will be charged with the responsibility of directing and overseeing health service provision going forward to draw on the experience and expertise of HSCB integrated care professionals with current responsibilities for pharmacy services and with stakeholders, including CPNI, to ensure responsive community pharmacy services can continue to be developed as witnessed throughout the COVID-19 period. Placing community pharmacy on the strategic bodies and structures in the department, including the primary care directorate, the rebuilding boards, and the various project and program boards will be important in helping to bring about a successful and inclusive transition. The Northern Ireland Community Pharmacy Network acts as a buffer for the HSC and a safety net for patients. It is essential, it is an essential frontline healthcare provider, key to the rebuilding of the health and social care. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Gorham um, Agatjard. And um, I'm going to check then with Caroline and Tristan. Which of you are speaking on behalf of the Dental Association? It's myself, Chair. Caroline, is it? Oh, Tristan. Tristan. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead, Tristan, please. Thank you. Thank you to the committee for inviting BDA Northern Ireland to present today. Members will have received our written submission, um, and our view is that this bill creates a unique context to overhaul how dentistry and oral health is administered within the Department of Health. The bill will have direct implications for dentists and oral health as stated under clauses two and three, but as significant are those indirect implications for dental administration that will follow from HSEB closure, which we would also urge the committee to consider. The lack of dental administrative capacity in Department of Health has without question constrained advances in the oral health of our population, not least on the strategic reforms required. It's the reason why our current oral health strategy dates back to when Tony Blair was still Prime Minister. It's also why our general dental practitioners work off a GDS contract that's over 30 years old and largely activity-based rather than focusing on prevention. 
It's why a Department of Health inequalities report can be published without any mention of oral health. This bill needs to be about so much more than simply abolishing the regional board. For us, it's about ensuring the right administrative structures are put in place that recognise the public importance of oral health in its own right, and also for the wider contribution oral health can make to general health. In our response, we also refer to information gaps and a complete lack of engagement thus far on how the bill relates to dentistry. We can see under Clause 2, over 1,100 GDP contracts will transfer from the board to the department next March, but we have yet to be consulted on what this might mean for independent dental contractors. We also have no clarity on what a future appeals process will look like. Furthermore, We've been given no insight into what the new chain of command will look like in relation to dental administration and where dentistry will fit in. On the role of Chief Dental Officer, after the bill comes into force, will the CDO be the senior DOH official to direct former board dental advisory staff brought into the department, or could the CDO themselves be under the direction of the senior civil servant? Will dentistry continue to be disenfranchised from the DOH hierarchy and departmental priorities by having no representation either on the department board or on the HSE management board? And finally, what policy framework will guide the work of former HSEB dental staff and indeed other dental staff under the control of the department? As per our opening remarks, we need to seize this opportunity to fix how dentistry is administered within the department and that's the precursor to being able to make much needed progress on tackling our considerable oral health inequalities and ensuring the public has continued access to health service dentistry going forward by reforming health service dentistry to be financially viable in its own right and to achieve a reformed, refocused and outward looking oral health system comprising general community and hospital dental services that can make a combined impact on some of the biggest public health challenges we face. BDA's preferred approach is to bring administration of dentistry under a new dental unit to be created within the department. This would be headed up by the Office of CDO, who would report directly to the Permanent Secretary and would have a seat at the top HSC Management Board. The dental unit must be properly resourced, which is a particular concern at present. These reforms would address the currently disjointed structures. It would help streamline dental administration by bringing together strategy, policy, and responsibility for dental services together. Dental officials would work under a common direction set out in a revised oral health strategy aimed at embedding prevention to our population's oral health. This would be fully aligned to the outcomes-based approach set out in the Programme for Government. We also want to see greater transparency and more opportunities for public engagement in the new commissioning process. Local engagement via the LCGs has been a useful watchdog in the past, and we want to see a new vehicle to facilitate this going forward and with continued dental involvement. Connected with this is, a define, is defining a future role for our local dental committees, following on from their current consultative role with the board on local dental issues. Ultimately, whatever new structures are put in place must have improved patient outcomes at their core. This should not be an abstract process. COVID has laid bare that the long-awaited reforms needed in dentistry in Northern Ireland simply cannot wait any longer. 
Morale among dentists has reached a new low with just 4% with high or very high morale. 89% of our GDPs feel financial, financial uncertainty. 62% of dentists can see a future in health service dentistry. And with dental activity rates sitting around 40% of the pre-COVID levels due to uh, infection prevention control restrictions, including enhanced PPE, this bill simply must deliver on dentistry. Thank you. Okay, thank you, and thank you all of all of the panel for for sticking to the time there, but also contributing. I think some very very significant evidence in terms of in terms of concerns and suggestions and ideas. I just would like to clarify. I think um, briefly myself before I go to members. Um, have has there what has what has the level of consultation on the new structures been? With each of you, if I could maybe just touch base with each of you to see, have you been engaged in the new structures? Because we are somewhat concerned around the idea of uh, removing one structure without knowing what is what is replacing it in greater detail. So I'll just check with each of you in turn then again. So, Carolyn, in terms of uh, the new structures, where are you at in terms of consultation on that? We've had no consultation, Chair, in relation to the new structures. So we, we really have a blank page. We, we don't actually know what's proposed um, and we're obviously very concerned about that. Um, you know, we, we don't know what the move um, is going to be. Uh, and we would urgently call for consultation with uh, with us and our members uh, in relation to what's proposed. OK, and Jared, on behalf of CPNA, sure. where are you at on the consultation process currently? Chair, similarly, we've had no engagement. We haven't been consulted upon, and indeed, this is the first interaction, as well as there are submission to the original consultation and the, your request for our submission. Uh, this is the first engagement that we've had with it, the process. Thank you, Jared And Tristan? There's been no consultation with BDA on this. Um, after sending our submission to the Health Committee, we also wrote to the Health Minister and we have a meeting scheduled with Martina Moore, Project Director of the Board Migration Project Team for next week, but there has been nothing to date. Okay, thank you. I'm going to go to members, but I am concerned. I am concerned to hear that because um, we, we did in, in the previous session, I noted that um, that that it's crucial that while everyone's on the same page, we need to have a clarity and detail, and we need to ensure not only that we're transferring responsibility and commissioning but that we're improving the process of it which is so badly needed across all of our healthcare systems so um i think i think i i would be concerned about that i have to say so i'm going to go now to members for questions i want first of all to our deputy chair pam cameron then jerry carol then paula bradshaw and then carol nikellen so go ahead pam please Sorry, Chair, there seems to be a wee bit of a delay. Hopefully that's it sorted now. Thanks, Chair. Thank you. I'm going to thank the panel for their presentations. Uh, uh, very interesting, but worrying that there's been so little consultation with, with the department. Um, I want to ask you how important it is that the dedicated arrangements for commissioning of services in areas of primary care are retained and what are the risks of the of a one size fits all approach moving forward? That's my first question. So, can someone of the panel indicate who wants to lead off on that? 
Chara, I'm happy to, to take that question, Pam. Go, um, go ahead, Caroline. Thank, thank you very much, Pam, for your question, for having us back in front of the committee t- uh, today. Um, I, I think it's become very clear. We, we certainly knew it as professions before COVID, but COVID has certainly laid it very bare that a one-size-fits-all approach does not suit any sort of healthcare system, um, particularly uh, with the, the health inequalities that we have in Northern Ireland, that we have in, in oral health in Northern Ireland. A one-size-fits-all one, one approach is not, is not going to suit anything, nor is it going to embrace the opportunity that we have to actually reform our services. This, this is a unique opportunity to change how things have been approached in the past. Um, it's it, it's very clear for us within dentistry that the the system that we have at the minute isn't working for our patients. It isn't working for our professionals. Um, therefore, the outcomes that 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 will be there for our patients just ju- just are not as good as they, they can be or should be. We have a system at the minute that's uh, designed around activity. It's designed around bean counting, widget filling, uh, filling teeth. It's not designed around a modern healthcare system that focuses on a preventative approach. Um, so from a dental point of view, a one size fits all approach, certainly an approach as well, which does not has to date has not offered any consultation with the profession and is not in the interest of any patients moving forward. Thank you, Caroline. Um, Any other views on that from panel members? Any any additional thoughts? I think, Colm, from a community pharmacy perspective, the transition here, the change does afford a tremendous opportunity. Community pharmacy has been, um, you know, for many years has had it, been in a very difficult place. And we have been working closely with board and department colleagues uh, and indeed with the minister over this last year. We've agreed commissioning plans which are reflective of local need and a new direction of travel for services. So we've seen the benefit of a much more engaged process in terms of our own sort of regional services. We have been engaged in ICPs and LCGs as well. And we also, through various initiatives, such as building a community pharmacy partnership, see the importance and value of working with stakeholders from the ground up in, in getting solutions. I think going forward, we, from a community pharmacy perspective, we have come and we're still on a journey into a, a stabilized place There's a lot of challenges still in community pharmacy. And I think for us, the real concern here is that when you introduce such a significant organizational or system change here, that while it does prevent or provide opportunities for enhancement and so forth, our perspective, the progress that has been made, we must continue to manage that safely through. There are parts of the health service that are working and they must be carried forward in a way that doesn't compromise uh, what is being achieved but it is about building on what's positive there and looking to look at uh, looking at the areas that need further work. And I think, you know, when you see the, the reports of the waiting list, you can see that there are many aspects of the health service that are, that are problematic. But I think one aspect that I would say is important here, and I think we touched on it in the earlier question around the engagement. This, a lot of the approach can arise. So understandably, there is a very sort of medical approach to health service provision. But healthcare provision is more, it's wider than medical, a medicalized model. It is very much about bringing the other stakeholders in, in, into that sort of strategic planning. And I think it's great that the committee here has, has reached out today to some of the other professions. And I think that's where we want to be, I think, collectively, but certainly from a community pharmacy perspective, having a meaningful input at the strategic project board, program board levels within the department, because 
to exclude our voices means that the full picture isn't there. It's not being considered. And I think that's to the detriment of, of the population and what the health service is trying to do. All of us are here because we want to make a real positive contribution. We see that we, we, we interact with patients, we interact with the health service, and we can see where the issues are. But unless we're at the top table making those informed um, contributions and being part and parcel of the service solution designs in the new system, then I think there is the risk of repeating some of the issues that have afflicted the system to date. And, and I would just add there, Chair, that, you know, from a social work point of view, um, I mean, the, the system and I think some of the criticisms of, of previous reviews that have happened has been that social work uh, and social care haven't been involved uh, early enough. So I, I think it's absolutely fundamentally important that in going forward, um, that we, we take on board the views of social workers and social care workers. Uh, they, they actually, you know, it's a whole system, a whole system approach needs to be adopted and we need to be at, uh, at the top table as well. I mean, I think the, the important thing is that, you know, we're trying to get a blend here. So we, we want to have, you know, a regional approach um, that, you know, provides consistency at a regional level, but that's tailored to local need. And that that's a, a difficult thing to try and uh, achieve. But I think if, if they engage with uh, those of us in the professional bodies uh, and with our members, that they'll, they'll enhance that. Um, and obviously, you know, co-production in terms of involving service users and carers is, is fundamental to that to that approach as well. Yeah. Thank, thank, thank you. you. Chair, I have another question, if that's okay. Yeah, go ahead, Pam. Yeah, great, thank you. Um, yes, thank you all for that, for those answers. I want to ask you as well, um, how you believe the, the Health and Social Care Bill can reduce administrative burdens on frontline staff? Uh, thank you, Pam. I'll, I'll, I'll take that, actually. Um, I mean, I, I think, I mean, social work, we, we have campaigned for a very long time about, you know, the need to reduce administrative burdens on, on social workers. Um, I mean, it, the, the system, as, as we see it, is, is broken. You know, it's flawed tremendously. Uh, we've done a number of reports over the years which have highlighted that social workers spend uh, 80% of their working day um, on paperwork and duplicative uh, bureaucracy. Uh, and despite lots of efforts, nothing has changed. Um, and we're in a worse situation now than we were when we first released our uh, report in 2012. Um, so, I mean, we have a social work workforce review that has uh, just, uh, it's in draft form at this stage. We were working towards uh, having that published um, last March Obviously, the world uh, events overtook us, and it's now in draft form to go to uh, to go for approval. And I think it's it's very unfortunate that um, the 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 workforce plan as is doesn't mention really bureaucracy. It, it doesn't you know tackle that issue head on. And I think until we actually are prepared to uh, to challenge that and to say that it really must change, it is not good enough that our social workers spend eighty percent of their working lives doing uh, paperwork and duplicative uh, bureaucracy. It's not acceptable. We wouldn't accept it of lots of other professional groups. Uh, and I think it, uh, it fundamentally needs reform. I mean, we called um, when the assembly had uh, was suspended, we gave evidence to the uh, Public Affairs Committee at Westminster, and we, we asked for a task force around reducing bureaucracy. That unfortunately uh, hasn't happened either. So we would absolutely make it a, a plea. I think any social worker uh, would, would, would be their number one request 
for in transforming a service that we absolutely strip out unnecessary bureaucracy. Uh, lots of bureaucracy is necessary. It's fundamental to practice, but it's the duplication um, of paperwork that, that really is a, a major problem. Yeah. Could I possibly add as well? I, I was listening to the previous session, and I think you'll recall the comment, I think, by, by Nicola, Nicola Hearn, where she referred to over the last 30 years, she has seen the increased levels of management in the health service. And I think health service provision does require striking a balance between accountability, but without micromanaging the system. We have seen in community pharmacy through COVID the need for an agile um, system response uh, it needs to be responsive to regional need and localised need. And it is it is about just striking a balance. Community pharmacies, extremely busy environments. We've, we're, we're taking up a lot of increased workload as a result of changes in access to health services in primary care. Um, that's against an already backdrop of some 50 million dispensing activities every year in community pharmacies. And therefore, while there is a need for accountability and governance, etc., everybody understands that. It is about streamlining it. It is about not overcomplicating things. And it is about recognizing the professionalism as well of the healthcare professionals that, that, that is in community pharmacy and indeed the health service. Um, we um, in community pharmacy are very much frontline. Uh, that is where the benefit and added value of community pharmacy is. It's that interaction with the patient. So the increase in bureaucracy, the increase in, 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 in administration, etc., associated with services, takes, out, takes us away from patients. And therefore, that is to the detriment of what I think is, is a health service objective overall in looking after our patients and having a responsive, uh, agile health service. Chair, if it's okay Thank to... You. If it's okay to step in around dentistry, yeah, go ahead, Jana. I suppose, Pam, yeah. on the back of what our, our remarks are through Tristan a short while ago, uh, in dentistry, we find ourselves in the unenviable position of, of at higher levels, having very little administration and bureaucracy, which which ultimately falls in down to our clinical practitioners. So in Northern Ireland, we have um, over 1,100 general dental practitioners. We also have dentists working in community services like myself, with dentists working in hospital services. Um, dentistry, like 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 every other profession on the screen today is, is full of bureaucracy. However, with the, the lack of a, a dedicated a dental branch within our Department of Health, with a very few dental advisors in the Health and Social Care Board who are spread extremely thinly, um, we, we, we are feeling the impact of that on the ground, which will ultimately affect our patients, affects our patient care. However, I suppose for one positive that we have had during COVID was engagement with our acting chief dental officer and our health and social care board around the operational guidance for re-establishing general dental services in Northern Ireland, and that was a, a that 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 was a, a real bit of co-production really between our dental clinical. Uh, practitioners and our health and social care board and our department showing that we could actually between us um, come up with evidence-based uh, infective prevention control guidance to, to, to get our dental practices back up and running for our patient care again. However, that's one positive example, but that relied very much on goodwill with practitioners, with clinicians, with the board, the department. We actually need some level of shared bureaucracy across our um, our government, our government and commission services with our clinical practitioners, so that we can, as clinicians, get on with treating our patients. Thank you, thank you, thank you Caroline, and actually. Yeah. Okay, Pam. So thank you. Yeah, and I actually was very struck this morning in relation to all the waiting list debate. That that thought that has been there at the committee that 
the the key the the main admit cause of admission of children to hospitals is tooth extraction, and we're dealing with it. We're dealing with a, a strategy that's significantly out of date, based on data that's even more out of date. And, and I just think you know there's something there that if we could look at things like that, we could free up some of the pressure and free up some of the resource. But anyway, that's that's a slight digression. So I'm going to go across then to Jerry Carroll. Jerry, go ahead, please. Thanks, Chair. Uh, thanks, panel, as well. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm very concerned about what I've heard this morning or this afternoon yet or uh, whatever time of day it is now. Um, and basically, they're all saying there's a lack of transparency um, from the department. Uh, and I think they've all said uh, words to the effect that there's lack of any detailed uh, consultation uh, or consideration uh, from yourselves. So that's very, very concerning and the department needs to uh, address that. Um, and hopefully we can, can, can pressure the department from the committee. Um, but just just a, a kind of comment and then maybe two quick points. Um, I was at a, a picket yesterday of uh, education welfare officers uh, who are deploy, uh, employed by the, um, by the EA. Um, they're basically social workers, but under a different name. Uh, but they're paid um, five thousand pounds less than uh, social workers, who I'm sure uh, Baz will, will tell me are, aren't probably paid enough <laughs> as it is. But these uh, these workers are obviously carrying out essential work uh, for vulnerable uh, young people, people who are falling beneath the cracks, uh, people who are um, you know have problems in school and, and all sorts of issues, and, and people in the brave communities. Um, so that's just obviously just to put that out there and, and any comments specifically on that uh, is welcome. But I, I'm not really hearing from either uh, the department previously or, or yourselves how um, this new structure will really deal with those uh, issues. And I know these are essentially education workers, but um, they tie in uh, with, with health issues. Um, and it seems to be there's a, an approach to really just move around the furniture rather than deal with some of the you know, the ongoing problems uh, in terms of staff, pay, and then obviously waiting lists. Um, and I suppose if there's any clarity from yourselves, uh, I take the point that you've had limited consultation, but if there's any clarity from yourselves around this bill and how it may deal with any of these issues, uh, it would be useful. And, and just a final comment, really, uh, to kind of, you know, confirm or, or to illustrate what, what George said, it's, basic, it's conveyed to me uh, quite regularly that, you know, the health service is obviously top, heavy of management um you know very for a senior management um and obviously that's that's quite uh in contrast to the fact that we have several thousand uh, staff um not employed uh, we're understaffed by several thousand in, in the health service so some general comments but you know if anybody wants to wants, wants to pick up on that and um uh, that would be useful but that's, that's me for now thanks jerry if i can come in on that so yes totally agree Education welfare officers, they provide a really vital role. They are social workers, every bit as much as social workers that are working in HSC. In relation to this bill, it's not going to have any impact because, you know, education welfare officers will be regulated the same as other social workers and they're regulated by Northern Ireland Social Care Council. But in terms of uh, all other governance, that will be taken forward by the Education Authority. But in terms of the staffing issues you're talking about, I mean, there are massive staffing pressures. We know that. There are huge staffing pressures associated with the rollout of the multidisciplinary teams as well, um, which we've been very much in favour of, bringing social work back to kind of community level. But we know that over the next 10 years, I think the figures we have, they're very significant. We're looking at, I think, 
By the time the multidisciplinary teams are going to be fully rolled out, you're going to need an additional um, 380 band seven social workers working in those teams. We only have at the moment in HSC 1,752 social workers in bands seven to nine. Now, most of those social workers will be, um, you know, band seven's lower grade. They will probably be the, the, um, the, the largest part of that group. But that's a massive drain in terms of HSC resources at the moment to, to fully staff those MDT teams. Now, that's only one example. We're seeing huge increases in demand in terms of looked after children's services in relation to older people's services. And these all need to be factored into proper workforce planning by the department. And that's that's absolutely essential. And that's where the focus really needs to be in terms of, of the, the next number of uh, years going ahead. The point that Carolyn said earlier as well, coming back to the point in, on bureaucracy, I remember in 2016, December 2016, I think it was you and Paula were the only two current members of the committee back on health committee back then. And I raised that point, the issue around bureaucracy and how we're essentially wasting money by requiring highly trained social workers to do administrative work. Administrative work is incredibly important, but it's not the, the primary role of the social worker. So if we're going to get the best value out of the system, we've got to make sure social workers are doing social work and that we're not paying them to do the wrong type of work where they're doing unnecessary duplicative bureaucracy. So staffing is a huge issue for us at the moment. We need to have additional resources. We know we need to have more staff, but we also need to have staff doing the right work. Thank you. Sure, maybe Jerry. Jerry, your point I think uh, touches on what I I think what's in the health service at the minute is it's almost like there's an iceberg. Everybody knows that there's issues on the top, but it's what's underneath that is the real problem. Uh, and that's why I think the importance of strategic planning and inclusion of this of the various professions at a very senior level is critical here to the success of this transition. Nobody's, I don't think, opposing the, the transition, but it's making sure that it's not just being done for, 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 for the sake of doing it. We have to have a real effort at, at tackling some of the issues. Um, we talked about the educational welfare officers, you know, having the social worker um, qualifications and so forth. We in community pharmacy just, with being on the front line, we are seeing day in, day out, the struggles that people have that is affecting their health in ways that just, you know, isn't necessarily about medicines. I've spoken with various members on the panel here, and I know there's there's particular interest in, in the mental health challenges here that, that will come forward. And I think, you know, it, it all points to, yes, there is a tremendous opportunity here. We all want to play our part in getting a health service that moves in the right direction, that does what it can for the public, and it does address some of the deficiencies, the waiting list, et cetera, et cetera. But it, again, it's my, my call here today. We have to be at those strategic levels in order to input because the experience that we have, that uh, skin in the game that makes it real uh, is what is needed at the top levels. I have no issue whatsoever with the strategic people uh, there who are charged with the responsibility, but they have to draw on our experience. And yes, we have tapped into that through the, the, the chief pharmaceutical officer and the, the director uh, of integrated care, assistant directorate and so forth. And that's what has helped make progress over this last year. But there's a lot more work to be done and we need to be at that uh, decision making level to help help with that. Thanks, Jerry. If I could maybe add, if I could maybe add a, a few words. 
I would just echo exactly what Jared has said. Um, has has been in the family practitioner services along with with their cells. You know, I think the perception and the reality for dentists and dentistry has been there's been a break in the chain um, within the department. We've had we currently have an acting chief dental officer um, who's done a remarkable job with very few resources. Uh, we don't know what the future of that post looks like. There's no deputy CDOs here. Uh, he doesn't get to report directly to the permanent secretary. So we aren't privy to, we feel dentistry isn't included in a lot of that high level strategic decision making and, and primary care then loses out, dentistry loses out. And then within dentistry, the smaller services, um, we, we are really concerned about where the community dental services would stand getting rid of the board, for example. So um, we need to end the disconnect. We need to, to join up uh, the system and join up the dot and actually have the, the overarching policies there in place to, to, to govern where we're going with things and with the appropriate targets and whatever else. Um, so that's just to echo what Jared said, we, we certainly share a lot of those views from the industry. Okay, thank, I, thank you. Thank you. So uh, go ahead, uh, Caroline, is it? Yes, I, I just wanted to, to make one last Caroline. point. Yes, it is, uh, Chair. Thank you. It was just to make one one final point in relation to that. That um, I mean, Jerry, I absolutely we stand behind and we support the EWOs and in their campaign for fair pay. And I think actually, you know, what this bill doesn't do is, as Andy said, is offer any solutions to those issues. You know, we have probation officers in Northern Ireland must be social workers. Uh, we have uh, youth community and youth justice sector uh, also employ social workers. And, and the the, uh, the chief uh, probation officer outgoing who, who, who leave her post uh, shortly, you know, was highlighting at a recent meeting that they, they can't employ staff uh, in the probation service uh, and in youth justice and an EWO because they, uh, they're, they're paid so much less. So, I mean, it absolutely is a fundamental issue uh, that, that really needs sorted out. And I think we need a, a very strategic approach to looking at our workforce as a whole uh, and valuing that workforce as a whole, uh, at, uh, and we need that strategic uh, approach to to sort that issue out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and and yeah, appreciate those are all important points, and and particularly we we are, we are focused on the on how that impacts or how that may be done via the bill that's in front of us. So I'm going to go now to Paula Bradshaw. Paula, go ahead, please. Um, thank you, Chair, and thank you, panel, for coming here this afternoon. Um, my first question is to pick up on the point, um, I think it was um, Carolyn uh, mentioned there around a dedicated de dental branch, for example, and I raised this issue last week when we had a representative from, from nursing there, and it strikes me that how we actually ensure that the full understanding of what dentists are facing and then in turn their patients is that if we enhance the role, for example, of the um, chief dental officer, chief son, um, sorry, social work officer, etc. So that they have more of a, a branch, but they weren't so keen last week because they said that that role is meant to be more of an advisory. But I just wanted to see if you could really expand a wee bit about how you think that we could have bit better accountability um, and better commissioning of services if we had more um, expertise at the top of the Department of Health across those different disciplines, if you know what I mean. Thank you. Chris, are you happy me to go ahead and answer? Absolutely. 
<laughs> Thanks very much, Paula. Nice to see you again. Um, so we, we, we have said all along that, that, that dentistry has been very much deprioritized within the Department of Health. So yes, the Chief Dental Officer does have a, 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 a very firm rule around the, adv the advising to the, to the Minister around, around dentistry in Northern Ireland. However, one of the things that we have asked for clarity on is what the role of this, the Chief Dental Officer will be as a, as a consequence of this health and social care bill. It's not clear to us, and if it's not clear to us as the dental professionals, then that's worrying in the future of dentistry within Northern Ireland. Um, the other thing that's, that, that, that is disappointing to us so far, and again, that we, we would see clarity on, is you know, how, how, how dentistry is, is, is integrated and related to the rest of the healthcare system. Um, you, you, you were one of the people very much involved in our event in Stormont going back a couple of years ago. And that was one of our big key asks within that was the recognition that dentistry is an, uh, an integral part of wider and general health. And if we don't have a substantive role within the department for our chief dental officer that goes beyond advisory, that goes into strategic planning, that allows our, our, our dental our, our dental representation to be at the, the, the top table, then the integration of dental and oral health within the wider uh, healthcare agenda simply won't be there. And the people who will miss out on that are, are our population. So, for instance, we have had the Department of Health publish the inequalities report. As, as, as Colin Marcher there um, indicated, biggest reason for a child to be admitted to hospital is for dental decay. I carry out those lists in my role within within my, my employment within the trust. You know, but believe me, those those children are not disappearing through COVID. In fact, the situation is getting worse because the waiting lists are increasing. Um, for instance, within my own trust, we are, we've been extremely lucky in that we have managed to get up to fifty percent capacity of, of our lists. That is the picture throughout Northern Ireland. So why why our, our 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 dental representation within the department doesn't have the strong voice beyond the advisory only? Then these inequalities are not going to improve. So we we are very much focused that the the, the deprioritisation of dental and oral health within the wider healthcare agenda in Northern Ireland has not benefited anybody, and in fact has had the negative impact on our profession and on our ability to. Um, hope that we have a profession moving forward within health service dentistry because we have hit crisis point. Thank you. Um, I suppose carrying on that point, I'll maybe ask Jared this, but I think it's, it's equally um, of relevance to um, dentists. And that is where, as private contractors, you are then having to have dental plans or do other income generating um, activities that actually subsidise your um, public health service work. I'm just wondering how the commissioning going forward could be improved so that our um, Community pharmacists, for example, aren't dipping into reserves, their own personal reserves, to subsidise then um, the making up of the blister packs, um, servicing the care homes, etc., which I know Jared has come to the committee in the past to talk yeah. about. So how can commissioning be better um, uh, improved as we move through into this new um, potential lead from the Department of Health? Thank you. Thank you, Paula. Um, I, I suppose... How can you how can you improve the commission? I, I touched on it in my my opening statement. Uh, as we transition to a new arrangement, um, I talked about the potential for budgets, uh, you know, not you know being in part managed by the trusts. At present, the the HSCB commissions community pharmacy service, and in, in, in large part, that is the totality of of community pharmacies funding. Um, I think. Going going forward, we would like certainty that the independent contract status 
is 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 defined and ring fenced, uh, so that you know the the value and benefit of of commissioned regional services is maintained. Community pharmacies, by and large, 95 percent of their their revenue that they're funded by the health service. There is not the scope for to dip into a lot of other aspects to to subsidise. Our, our concern is that you know going forward, where there is potential to look at area population healthcare models, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that involve spanning across the the trust, the, the secondary care and primary care sector. That if that responsibility goes to, uh, in part, for the funding goes towards uh, the trusts, that primary care practitioners could see that part of their funding is 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 retained within the trust because the trusts are always in a deficit position. So I think it is first of all about ring fencing current budgets and then looking to stabilize those and, and build those. Community pharmacy just doesn't have the capacity to to look to alternative revenue streams. Um, so it, it is important. Uh, and I think, you know, as I said, there's been quite a bit of work done in this last year, year and a half, but there's so much more to do. Uh, and this period of change is going to be critical. I'll get back to the point, Paula, that you mentioned earlier, but in, in terms of the, the dedicated dental branch, and again, it comes back to my, my point about just the influence and the ability to influence. I, I've been in this role for quite a while, and I remember going up to the department and to see the director of primary care, and the director of primary care would have had responsibility for medicine, for pharmacy, dentistry, and op op optometry. I remember going up a few years ago, and um, the director of primary care only had responsibility for medicine, for general medical services. And therein lies a difficulty: is that you know, and this is why you need an inclusive process, because if you don't, then part of what the department does is set the policy. But if the policy is uni-professional, uni then there is the risk of the detriment cascading out to the other professions, which in then pick, is picked up through loss of opportunity for wide healthcare to, to the population. So that's why I think it is important that, that we in CPNI, and I know our chief pharmaceutical officer is, 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 is engaged within the department, uh, and indeed in, in the rebuilding management board, but we feel that CPNI has, has a role to play there as well. Uh, and that's what we're calling on because it is about that safe handover of arrangements as they are at the minute, uh, where pharmacies funding is, is largely uh, controlled and managed by the health and social care board so that when we go forward, that there's no risk to that. And that's, I think, what all uh, family practitioner services would have. It's just an uncertainty around you know, that governance around the, the contractual arrangements that applies to independent contractors. Thank you, Paula. Thank you. Okay, thank, thank you, Paula. And Carol, we can then go on to Carol, um, and that's the last indication I have at this point in time. Go ahead, Carol, a little help. raised or definitely related to the abolition of the health Carol, and social care. Sorry, we, we missed. Carol, could you, could you just start again? We just caught you midstream there. Could you start again, please? No bothers. Apologies for that, Chair. Um, it, I was just saying it strikes me that, first of all, thank you for your presentation. Um, and it strikes me that a lot of the issues you, you have raised are certainly linked 
to the abolition of the Health and Social Care Board and what will happen to commissioning. But for me, listening to this, it's very distressing. So fundamentally, we also need to deal with some of the other issues that just have raised because I don't, I'm not saying you're doing this, by the way, but I don't want those issues to get lost in this process either. So in relation, and it has been mentioned before, but in relation to the department's plans around tackling health inequalities, the fact that dentistry wasn't visible is quite alarming. And given the oral health, state of oral health, particularly for extractions, and the fact that good health, oral health, physical and mental health is also linked to finance and nutrition, it's a massive opportunity. So certainly I would imagine that you know we will be raising that as well. Um, and the issues around community pharmacy, um, you know, has a, has been given a lot of support by individuals in this committee and indeed parties. And in fact, I think we're, we're supporting you all. The issue for me and the question is that how can you use opportunities for this process to try and fix a lot of the bureaucracy is one thing, particularly in social work. Because uh, I, I represent North Belfast, have a lot of contact with very good social workers. Um, but as Jerry Carl pointed out, I also got very good contact with the educational welfare officers. I've got good contact with um, the probation board and, 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 you know, avoiding through the criminal justice system. I see a lot of people in the community and boundary sector also ask been doing more with less money. And I appreciate bureaucracies needed around safeguarding. So we all accept that. So what do we want? What would you do differently? in terms of how do you ensure that your queries around uh, reducing bureaucracy for social workers actually is reduced? How can we ensure that dentistry is part of tackling health inequalities and indeed part of this management board? And the last thing is, that thing that Jared said was that you do need to be represented at that senior level. So in relation to this bill, what else is it we need to do? And then the last point I'll make sure, because I'm conscious of time's running on, that I think we need to also, if you can, separate some of the issues that are are in the bill, but also part of transforming health and social care. And um, because social care is going to be critical, particularly if you're going to be addressing waiting lists. We can't get care packages, but haven't got those social workers on the wards and working with families, then there's going to be another backlog. So what would you do in those circumstances? I'm asking you to do more in order to, but we 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 want to make sure that these issues don't slide. And we want to give you as much support as possible without wedging everything into the process of the abolition of this bill. So I'll just leave it there, Chair, and thank you very much. Chair, I, I'd be happy to respond okay. in the deck. No, Carl, thank you very much uh, for your very favourable comments. I mean, look, this issue of oral health, it's been kicked down the road for, for many, many years. You know, we, we have a policy vacuum. I think we, need that. Um, we have been able to feed in, you know, oral health is, is linked with other issues like cancer, and we've been able to feed in the oral cancer issues linked in with the, the new cancer strategy and so on. But we absolutely need the department to, to take this issue on, to really accept that they need to put in place the resources, the manpower at their end, to be able to make the reforms needed. 
So we need a new GDS contract or else there won't be health service dentistry post-COVID. And things were teetering and broken before COVID. It's collapsed and it's, it's reliant on ongoing short-term support. So that needs sorted. Um, we also need uh, to tackle the inequalities and we think we need a new oral health system. So within dentistry, to link the various dental crafts, to link the GDS, the CDS, the hospitals, again, that overarching policy, where do we want to go? What, what, what can we do and set the new vision for oral health in Northern Ireland? Draw from the learning elsewhere, best practice. And, actually, and I think the final thing is to integrate oral health with the contribution it can make to wider health priorities um, and just stop the, the broken link in the chain within the department where dentistry pays the young of a voice where we've heard today clearly when it comes to family practitioner services there's a disconnect between the big high level priorities been taken forward at a departmental level and and the office of cdo where is that going how will it ha have the strategic focus and capacity to be able to deliver and, and lead the reform agenda that's so badly needed within oral health and dentistry. Uh, okay. Sorry, Caroline, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, go ahead, Jared. Okay. Um, go ahead, Caroline. Go ahead, Caroline, and then we'll come back to you, Jared. Go ahead, Caroline, please. Okay, thank you, Chair. Um, I mean, I would say, Carol, thank you in relation to the comments you made. And I think uh, you, you make a good point that a lot of the issues we raise, you know, need separated out from, from the health and social care bill. And I think that point is very well made. In terms of what we do about bureaucracy, we, we have so many ideas. And I mean, some of them, I mean, I think we can give you at this stage, we, we need a task force uh, that's headed up by the chief social worker, time limited, and actually is tasked with stripping out all the unnecessary duplicative paperwork that we use. Uh, if I could show you the, the plethora of forms that we have to complete, you may, you'd be gobsmacked. So we, we need to actually genuinely, from a very strategic point of view, we give permission uh, to the practitioners who are worried about not filling in forms. Uh, we strip out the unnecessary paperwork. Um, we, we, we develop one referral form, for example, that's done by an agency, as opposed to the 20 or 30 forms that other people insist that we fill in. We say we're going to do this form. Uh, and I think if we could reduce, I mean, I think our aspiration is to switch that balance. So 80-20, if we could say that our task uh, is, is to get to a system by reducing increments, that we spend 80% working with people and 20% doing paperwork, then that seems like a fair system uh, to me. But I think, you know, looking at caseloads uh, and, I mean, satisfaction within social work, it, it's all interlinked. But I think we need a task force. Thank you. And Jared? Yeah, just very quickly, uh, Carl, thank you very much. I think um, you're right about separating the bill and, and the operational aspects. But what I think the bill does give, I mean, there's, there is this, this transition going to come. What the bill does is it should give the vehicle for the reformation to, to take place. Um, and I think, you know, when I look at community pharmacy um, and, you know, even just as recent as, as the COVID response. What I think family practitioner services, independent contractors, and certainly community pharmacy has is that there is an agility within the sector. Um, and, you know, we know that the health service and everybody's aware of, of bureaucracy and it's more of an oil tanker. But I think whenever you're looking to change a system and you want to enhance and improve, we, we, 
we mustn't we mustn't go into the, the trap of, of thinking that the whole system is irreparably broken. We have to look at what's working well and look to build on the positives. And I think the agility that there is within the, 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 the family practitioner uh, uh, professions and certainly community pharmacy is something that I think has to be looked at. We have, we have I suppose, still stolen the march a wee bit with our commissioning plans over this last two years in trying to accelerate some of the change. But there's, as I said, there's more work to be done. I think uh, it was touched on there around, you know, mental health, uh, support for patients, you know, with medicines, uh, adherence uh, and compliance trays and so forth. And we're actually working through uh, trying to formalize ser services. And these are services, if we get this service right, well, then this is going to impact on, in, not just on, on the patient that, that, that gets the service coming in from the pharmacy, but it's, it's, it's around how that patient is managed through the whole journey of care. So it is around domiciliary care support, et cetera, et cetera. So these are examples of, of, of ways in which community pharmacy is innovating. And I think it is about looking at what is working well within the system and trying to see how that model there can be the template for going forward. Uh, we want to play our full part. We, and I think that's why uh, the repeated call here to be at those decision-making levels in the planning to avoid an over-medicalized approach to the solution here uh, and reaching out to the other providers uh, as uh, as well as the local communities is, is, is the right way to do it. But it is just striking a balance, uh, uh, but trying to move at pace. Okay, thank you. Um, thank you. And um, I'm just going to check with the clerk. I don't have any other indications from members at this stage. Clerk, can I just briefly check with you? Have you received anything? No further indications, sure. Okay, so listen, I, th I think that was a very a very valuable session. Um, I think clearly there are significant issues of interest, both relating to the bill and some which maybe go even beyond the bill that, that we're considering. But all of the all of the information and the evidence will certainly be considered in full by the committee. I want to thank each and every one of you for taking the time to provide us with your insights and um, experience and suggestions and all of that. You're all obviously key um, components of our entire health and social care service. And I think we're we're very much aware of that and, and uh, keen, I think, to ensure that your voices, your experience, your expertise are heard and are able to provide that extra value which which each of your each of your field of work represent. So thanks for that very very much this morning. Um, and please all take care in the time ahead and appreciate your attendance here this morning. Gorme Thank you. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Okay, members. Um Thank you, members. So I think in, in those across those two sessions, there's clearly a lot of very significant evidence and, and things to be considered. Um, and I know we will be receiving this all in terms of a report for further consideration. But um, do members have any have any comments they wish to make at this stage or anything um, relating to the HSC bill in particular that uh, the members want to highlight before we, we take a short break and go into our next session? No, so there's, I think there's a lot to reflect on. So listen, members, I'm going to go. Um, I'm going to go just to a short break there. If we could come back at twelve forty to resume the session, so that's a, a twelve minute break. So back at twelve forty. Thank you. And Claire, can I ask you to remove uh, all participants from the spotlight and into the audience temporarily?
no problem, Chair. That's us, um, everyone in the audience.
we're back, Coriat, and if we have our next panel members online. Yes, Chair, we're, um, we've got the members in the audience there and we have the next um, officials already. Okay, we'll, we'll move on then without further ado. So I'd like to welcome everyone back to the resumption of our committee this morning. And item seven now is a departmental briefing into the inquiry into hyponatremia related deaths. So um, item seven, item seven is a, a briefing from the permanent secretary of the Department of Health on the work of the department in relation to the outcome of the inquiry into hyponatremia related deaths. I refer you there members to papers at tab seven of your pack and to the correspondence uh, from an individual which was received that is there at tab 9.13 of the table pack. So I'd now like to welcome to our meeting this afternoon, Mr. Richard Pingeli, who is Permanent Secretary in the Department of Health. Are you able to hear us there, um, Richard? Yes, I can hear you, Chair. Can you, can you hear me? Thank you. Yes, I'm hearing you, hearing you fine there. And also, Richard is joined this morning by Mr. Andrew Dawson. And Andrew is Director of Quality, Safety and Improvement within the Department of Health. And um, are you able to hear us, I presume, okay as well, Andrew? Yes, I can hear you. Thanks. I'm on the same table. Oh, okay. The sound quality is a little bit a little bit poor, so just be conscious of that. If you do have access to headsets, that's usually better. But otherwise, just uh, try and keep it as I suppose slow and clear as possible. And um, we'll. Uh, so I just would like to say at the start of this briefing um, that I think each and every one of us thoughts are absolutely with the families who have been so devastatingly impacted as a result of the hypernatremia-related deaths. Each and every one of those families are suffering their individual pain, have waited a long time for progress and answers, and I think we're all acutely aware of that. I also admire in some respects the fact that the families have maintained a focus and have sought to bring about improvements in health and social care to ensure that what happened to them never happens to anyone else and I am I am filled with admiration for how they have suffered and endured that pain and loss but also continued to campaign to make things better for others. So I'm very conscious as I know we all are this morning. So Permanent Secretary I would like to invite you then if you want to give an opening statement and then maybe we'll go to members for a question and answer session. Thanks very much Chair. Um, Chair I have a few opening comments. I'll, I'll not labour them too much. I'm conscious that the committee took evidence on the 25th of March from one of my colleagues, so there's a few overview points that I'll make. Um, firstly, Chair, could I just endorse the point you made about the, the stoicism and dignity of the families uh, on the back of this issue? And, and again, I would take this opportunity on behalf of the system, just offer again our ap apologies um, that uh, the, those five young children, Adam, Claire, Lucy, Rachel and Connor, were so badly let down by our system in terms of the care that was provided to them. That's the entry point for what has been a long process of producing an inquiry re report, but I don't think we should ever lose sight of those tragic events at the start of this. Um, Chair, just trying to pick up on some of the points that were in the, the 25th of March uh, session ra rather than repeat them. Um, I mean, this obviously is a very substantial piece of work from our perspective. I just want to reiterate that it's one that we're absolutely committed to. Um, it was one of the early things the minister did in taking up post last year um, was, was to endorse the recommendations and, and accept that we would move forward and implement those. 
there was a sense certainly in the, the committee session at the end of March, a bit of frustration with the timeline. And that, that's certainly understandable, Chair. Just a couple of points of context that I, I think it's helpful to make. Um, this report was published in January 2018, but I think it's also important to acknowledge that the inquiry was fundamentally about events that happened around about the turn of the century. So as you know, 18 to 20 years ago in some cases, and I think um, the inquiry report acknowledges that a huge amount of progress had been made since that time to the publication of the inquiry. So whilst there's there's 96 recommendations that we want to get on and deliver, it, it's just to be clear, the starting point isn't things as they were when these tragic events took place. Uh, the system has moved on. The other contextual point here, and I think this came up in your last session, uh, at an early stage in this, we consciously adopted a, an approach of engagement and co-production. I think that, um, and Quentin Oliver, I think certainly evidenced this point, that has stood us in good stead. It has significantly enhanced the quality of the product uh, we're delivering here, but it does have something of a trade-off in terms of uh, the speed at which we make progress. I think that's that's a reasonable and appropriate trade-off in terms of quality. And the other issue, obviously, which I'm not needing to labour, is the uh, the COVID pandemic of the last year. Formal work in the uh, within the department had to be paused in March due to the pressures in the system and allow colleagues to be redeployed. So, um, as you're aware, there's nine work streams and seven subgroups, each of which was developing an implementation plan. That that work was proceeding at pace. And if I roll the clock back to about March last year, there's 15 departmental colleagues working directly and largely full-time on the programme. Um, subsequent to the pause in March last year, that reduced the three staff and the additional support that they were drawing in from colleagues across the department and the wider service, also that, that was no longer available. So currently we're at the stage, there's, there's been some drift back towards that with nine colleagues working in the programme mostly, however, on a part-time basis at this stage. As pressure through COVID continues to decrease, we will continue to ramp up activity and, re and refocus and re-energize that program. Um, there, there was a fair bit of coverage in the last session about the process we're going through in the assurance framework. I, I'll not labor that, Chair, just to see of um, repeating that. But just to summarize, a huge amount of work has been done in this space. Um, the reality with a lot of these programs are that the, the significant component of the work is in building the foundations and the engagement and the dialogue and the analysis before we get into the delivery phase. For a, for a considerable number of the recommendations, we're rapidly approaching that phase. And I think over the next few months, we'll start to turn that into a, a delivery mode. But just to say, this priority remains a very, very significant, this work is a very significant priority for us. And as we can come out of COVID, we will re-energize that and take it forward. So that was all I wanted to say, Chair. I'm happy to take any questions. Okay, thank you. And I suppose um, one from me, first of all, Richard, and then I'll go to members. Um, you, you touched upon there the engagement and co-production piece, and you, you referenced the quality and the value that that adds. Can you give me an indication about the scale and extent of co-production that's ongoing at the present time or over the last period of time? Um, well, Chair, I, I think this came out in the last session. That I mean, maybe the, the, the easiest metric is the, the number of individuals involved. I think there's over 200 individuals across 
and sorry, I was going to say across the system, but that's individuals from within the system, but also service users, carers, other interested parties. So I think that that number is maybe the best indicator, Chair, of the scale of the, the co-production challenge. Okay, Richard, you are breaking up there quite badly at times. I just about was able to, to follow the, the trail of that in terms of in terms of the 200. Um, what engagement has there been or is there currently with families who are clearly central and, and key to all of this? So can you outline what engagement there is ongoing with families at present? There, there's ongoing engagement of the five families. Chair, one does has, and it's their choice not to engage with us. So the other four... I think there's been regular communication three, I think uh, receive regular updates via email and one chooses to receive them by letter. So if I go back to the minister's statement towards the end of March, they would have had pre-release side of that and there, there's ongoing engagement with those families. And are families also able to contribute back rather than as well as receiving updates which is certainly to be welcome are they able to contribute as this unfolds and do they do that well i mean chair the the answer to your first part of your question is yes they are able to contribute we would certainly value any contribution they, they would want to make to us um i think we we have to respect their views on how they do that and, and certainly from our perspective i think individual work streams and they have engaged with them but we're conscious of not overburdening them but chair i don't want that ever to be an, perceived as an excuse for not engagement um we would welcome the perspectives and views of the families um very very significantly and uh, anything they want to offer us would, would be willingly received on our part and andrew again specific on that point other than to say again we will always um adhere to the family's preference um, as to how they wish to engage with us uh, on this, uh, and if if, that, if those preferences change at any stage, we will be more than happy to accommodate that. Okay, thank you both. I'm going to go then across to members. So at this point in time, I have indications from Paula Bradshaw, Carolyn Killen, and Pam Cameron. So I'm going to go back to Paula and ask you to go ahead with your question or questions, please, Paula. Um, thank you, Chair. Thank you, panel, for coming this morning or this afternoon now. I suppose it's following on from Colin's point there around the um, engagement with the families. Uh, and, and Richard, we spoke about this many years ago, the difference in the inquiry report between the findings and the recommendations. And I do applaud your department, even through COVID, and still trying to drive those forward. And I'm just wondering, um, are you satisfied that the Department of Health is still seeking to hold to account or sorry how are you ensuring that those um healthcare professionals who are implicated in the inquiry report are held to account uh, and so that the families actually see that um the inquiry was not in vain thank you sure i think there there's there's three elements to that holding to account piece there's uh, the employer process um for many of I think most, but not exclusively, any individuals named or criticised in the report uh, is attached to a profession and will be subject then to professional regulation. So there's the employer, there's their own professional regulator. And the third aspect is then any ongoing PSNI investigation. The individuals in the named in the report 
we just need to be clear, none of those named or criticised are direct employees of the department. They're um, employees of arm's length bodies. So the nature of the employer-led process is one that is being led by, and in most cases, a trust. It will be for the trust to take that forward. As a department, we, we are and rightly so removed from that involvement, direct involvement in that. So what we have received from the trusts is they, they would update us in terms of the generic process that they're taking forward, but the trust have their own legal duty of confidentiality towards our employees, so they wouldn't get into giving us the details of the process as regards any specific individuals. But in, in overview terms, at the point of receipt of the report at the end of uh, January 2018, each of the trusts um, reviewed it, identified any employees of theirs that were named in it, and then would have started the internal uh, process. In parallel with that, they would have ensured that where relevant, those employees either self-referred or were referred to the relevant regulator, be it the GMC for medical staff or the NMC for nursing colleagues. Um, and, and then the, the third aspect is any ongoing PSNI investigation. Again, employers may need to take uh, legal advice as regards the overlap between an APSNI investigation and an internal trust or employer-led process. But so, I mean that that that's the overview of the system. But as I say, the fact that the department is not the employer for any of the named individuals, we're not in direct drive in terms of that process. Okay, well, thank you. But if we can look at it from a different angle, then. Um, Obviously, at that time of the of very unfortunate death of these young young children, the, the funding to the trust came from the Department of Health. So there is a degree, there, there's obviously a linkage there. And I'm just wondering then, when we see now there's going to be a new victims commissioner, for example, um, that hopefully comes through the Department of Justice, that in many ways, those families who are thrust into grief through no fault of their own um, um, do feel at the far side of an inquiry that they are, have been just sort of left. And I'm just wondering what responsibility or what role the department has to ensure that they can navigate through all the information and communication that's needed for, so that they feel that they're really representing their, their loved one who sadly passed. So just thank you. Well, I, I think it's a very fair point. And as, as I said at the start, I, you know, I am deeply conscious of, of the feelings of, of the families. I mean, the, the families have been absolutely put through the mill by the system in terms of this and it, it's it's the last thing we want to add or compound that, that in any way the difficulty we have as the as the department is that we cannot get involved in individual issues so um i know that some not all the families are engaged directly with the employers to receive an update in terms of those individual processes but the the department that if I take the central view, we're, we're not in a position to offer them anything other than an overview of the generality of the processes because we cannot get into the specifics. We're, we're not privy to that ourselves. And you know, one key element of that is if we were to interfere in that process, it could undermine the robustness of that process if it was leading to a disciplinary outcome. So there, I know there's, there's ongoing dialogue, as I say, between certainly some of the families and the employers, but it I, I do recognise the, the frustration and difficulty that will cause the families. Not that is a matter of regret. Okay, thank you. But I suppose that 
the point I'm making really is that their pain is still palpable two decades on, and I just I'm just trying to find ways that we can support them. Not that they're never going to grieve, but to, to make it easier for them going forward. But thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Paula. And going then to Carol Nikhilin, Liana Ray, Leshin Kest, Caroline, Carol Little Hall. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Tell yeah. me, Abela. Yeah. Okay. So, Richard and Andre, thanks very much. You've had a long wait coming to the committee, um, but I'm sure you're well used to that. Um, just picking on your up at the last point around trust employees and the role of the department, I I think just to say that each each of the committee members will understand that, particularly if there are issues that there's ongoing investigations, the people are um, entitled to for hearing. You know, it's a natural justice process, so we're not looking to subvert that. But the issue for me is that we have an employee who's now with the Department of Health, who was formerly with the Trust, and there are still ongoing investigations, and not investigations, but legal processes that that individual has lost each time. So there's an issue of public confidence. And the other aspect for me is that, um, you know, Justice O'Hara's report came at the end of 2019, and those families, um, and indeed some of health and social care staff, uh, as part of that inquiry, um, still feel that they can't settle because there's too many unanswered questions. So um, we, we are, well, I certainly am under the impression that the co-design and co-production piece, certainly in relation to the consultation around the different work streams, that the uh, involvement of the families is at a minimal basis so I would welcome an opportunity for you to um, uh, elaborate on that and then my next question is really around the role of the duty of candor so um, for example Justice O'Hara's report recommended that a strategy duty of candor is urgently and fully enacted and that's that consultation's underway so in terms of the organization of the duty of candor, what is the implications for an organization vis-a-vis -vis trusts or arm's length bodies uh, in terms of the criminal liability attached to the breach of this duty and the criminal liability attached to the obstruction uh, of another in the performance of that duty? And Andrew, I understand um, this is an issue that goes to the core of the, the, the problem because for me, there is a, a nuance which is quite stark the minister did accept all the recommendations. He did say he accepted all the findings, but the fact that a substantial person who's uh, now uh, you know, at the heart of the department, who was criticised in that report, wouldn't give me the confidence that he's accepted all the findings in full. So uh, in relation to those questions, um, I'll just leave it there. Okay, thank you, Chair. Thanks. Um if I pick up in, in terms of the involvement of families, um, as I said, certainly we will engage with the families in this process of, of taking forward work in the 96 recommendations to the extent that the families want to be engaged. We will certainly welcome anything and everything they, they want to offer by way of input. The sense I'm getting from you, Carl, is you're, you're picking up some frustration that maybe they feel they're not properly engaged. 
if you're happy, I'll certainly take that away and check and, and make sure the message is heard loud and clearly in the system that we need to re-energise that reach out to the families. And I, I want the, the families to be absolutely clear that from our perspective, um, there is an open door to the extent uh, that they wish to engage with us on these points and that will be welcomed. And I, I'll certainly take that away and, and, and reaffirm that point. And the duty of candour, um, as, as you know, the consultation started, I think, the 12th of April. Um, so it, it, it's difficult to answer a question in terms of specifically what that will mean for organisations, because the, the minister's position, the consultation is predicated on the co-production work of the work stream. At the close of consultation, those responses will be analysed. At that stage, the minister will form policy position as to how we implement that point, so that the granularity of what that will mean. Now, it's, it's a bit less murky, for want of a better word, in terms of the organisational duty, because the consultation document had a policy proposal uh, yeah. singular. Um, for the individual duty of candour, there were three alternative options in there, because that's obviously a more contested space. But yeah. until those responses are received and analysed and the minister strikes his own policy position, which will then start the legislative process, it, it, it's difficult to be absolutely precise about what that, that will mean, other than the generality about openness, engagement, sharing and, of information at an early stage. And Richard, just to try and, and, and finish that off, so as part of the being open policy, certainly the contributions when the consultation ends, they'll certainly be made public too. I just want to be specific because I don't want to leave anybody feeling that they need a dancing head of a pin. Um, Ian Young, was an employee of the Belfast Trust. He's now an employee of the Department for Health. So I think it's important to make clarification on that in relation to the points that I raised about public confidence. Sure. I mean, I, based on the comments I've made earlier, and certainly the, the Minister's letter to the, the committee at the end of March indicated the fact that we, we can't get into individual personnel matters. Just in terms of a point of fact, um, Professor Young remains an employee of the Belfast Trust. He is on secondment to the department. So his formal employer remains the Belfast Trust. And the, the, the process that I outlined earlier will, will apply to, to every trust employee through that process. Um, as I said, I, I absolutely appreciate that this will be frustrating for you, but it, it's incredibly difficult to get into any more granular detail about individual cases not least because those cases are being being led by um, by the employer. Well, that's clarification, Richard, because I, I too thought he was an employee of the department. Um, so that's, that, that is clarification, so thank you. Okay, thanks, Carl. Okay, thank you, thank you, Carl. And uh, moving, I'm going then to Pam, and then I have Jerry Carroll and Jonathan Buckley uh, after Pam Cameron. So go ahead, please, Pam. Thanks, Chair, and thank you, uh, Richard and Andrew, for your attendance today, and thank you for naming those children. Uh, I think it's important that we remember the hurt and the pain uh, and the grief that the families are still going through after all this time. Uh, There's very difficult times for them. Um, I wanted to ask in the round um, how the input of services um, or the input of service users, I should say, carers and community stakeholders affected by the downturn in the IHRD programme activity during the pandemic 
um, you know, how, how, how has that been impacted? How those stakeholders, um, what, what has happened with that? And has this um, been restored yet? Um, that would be my first question. And then my second one would be in around um, how they progress against the action plans. How will that be evaluated? And how is that work all being joined up? Okay, thanks, Pam. Um, in terms of the first question, I'll, I'll ask Andrew maybe to fill in the detail. But the, the overview is when we, we paused this programme in March last year because of the pressure on the system and colleagues within the system had to be redeployed uh, in terms of addressing the pandemic. Because we're working the principle of co-production, that requires people with all different perspectives to be in the room at the same time. So that, w- that had an impact. We're hoping to slowly climb out of that, but Andrew, do yeah. you want to? Sure. Um, in terms of service users and carers, um, there is representation on um, some, if not all, of the work streams uh, from service users and carers. And in addition, there is a service user and carer liaison group, which, um, again, it, 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 I suppose its work was uh, significantly curtailed by uh, the focus on the pandemic. Uh, we're trying to get that back up and running now. I'm recently in post and I have met with um, the chair of that uh, group uh, as part of my uh, introduction to the job. Uh, and uh, we are also then uh, looking at getting the work stream chairs back together as well um, as a means of uh, getting going on all of the work uh, that needs to be, that remains to be done in, in implementing the recommendations. Um, you mentioned then about, about progress against the action plan and how that will be evaluated. Um, part of that is done by the uh, by the assurance work stream. So, in other words, when a work stream goes away and, and comes up with proposals as to how they will implement an action, that has already been uh, in all but two recommendations analysed by the assurance work stream and seen as a, as a sort of viable way of implementation. Um, the, the the difficult part then comes whenever we whenever we come to actually um, take the action to implement across the system be that by legislative change, policy change, um, uh, et cetera. So um, in terms of how it will be evaluated, we will be looking at the the, the, the wording of the recommendations um, and most of the recommendations will be um, implemented as worded. Um, From our perspective, um, just to assure you, um, that this isn't something where we will be reluctantly held to account for implementation of these recommendations. These recommendations genuinely matter to us. We, we want them implemented. Um, if it, a couple of analogies thus far in terms of the rollout of the programme, we've published, I think, four or five um, updates, progress. Uh, pro- yes. progress reports. We will continue to do that post the implementation of recommendations. If we If we look to delivering together, which is our transformation strategy. Subsequent to the publication of that strategy back in um, the tail end of 2016, we have published progress reports where we took the 18 recommendations within that and publish an update of how the the implementation of that recommendation was going. So we haven't settled on the exact methodology for that, but I would certainly envisage that we will continue to publish reports which set out for each of the 96 recommendations, um, but whether that has been implemented, partially implemented, and some narrative against that, which will certainly facilitate the, the accountability and holding the account. But 
But I think the big point is just offering the reassurance that this absolutely matters to us and something we want to get done, not least because it will improve the quality of the service we provide. That's great. Thank you both. Sorry, Pam, we're having a wee bit of trouble getting the chair back up on the screen. Hopefully that should be it sorted now. Okay, you hear me now, okay, Clerk? Yes, hearing you now, yep. Chair. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Pam. And uh, going then across to Jerry Carroll. Jerry, go right, Little Hull. Um Thanks, uh, Richard and Andrew. Uh, isn't great sound just from your end, just, just so, so you are aware, but. Um, Am I right in saying just from your presentation uh, this morning that are the recommendations, uh, none of them have been, uh, sorry, my camera's off, apologies. Are the recommendations, um, none of them have been implemented so far? Um, none of them have been formally implemented, Jerry, but there, that's not to say that progress hasn't been made. And, you know, maybe the easiest example is if we take the independent medical examiner, whilst we haven't implemented that, um, currently, there is a, we're, we're using a prototype for, a, for an IME in three of the five trusts that will extend on the 1st of June to four of the five trusts. I'm thinking of, on a Tuesday, Wednesday and a Thursday to prototype that. So I just I use that to illustrate that we're not at the stage where we would say that is fully implemented, but it's not to suggest that below that change isn't starting to take place within the system and progress being made against it. Yeah, thanks. And, and I, I wouldn't claim to speak on behalf of the families, but um, I think part of the frustration amongst some of the people I've spoken to is that uh, there's a real delay in implementing these. And I think COVID is obviously a challenge, but I think there's uh, the findings were made sometime before COVID. Uh, just two final points. Um, the duty of candor and sort of consultation and, and, and legislation, uh, I think there's a bit of a concern that um, there may be efforts to either delay or to water down uh, or to dilute any legislation um, around that. And I would be concerned if that's the case. So I'd appreciate uh, some clarity or, or allaying my and other people's fears uh, on that. And this is obviously today about, you know, hyponatremia uh, families, but it applies to everybody, you know, if hyponatremia um, uh, victims don't get answers, then um, people aren't convinced that uh, neurology or, or others will be uh, getting answers. So I think that duty of candor consultation um, needs to be, uh, you know, reflective of what uh, Justice, Justice O'Hara recommended and also what is needed. And it's not about scurring uh, or frightening medical uh, practitioners, but to make sure there is uh, accountability. Uh, and then just finally, Richard, just um, from your end, obviously you, you're playing or were playing a, a key role with the um, implementing the recommendations. Uh, I presume that wasn't the case last year with COVID because um, we, um, I think the last time you presented in front of us was maybe February of last year or, or March. Um, so obviously, you, did you play a key role in COVID and your role in, in the, uh, implementing these recommendations was uh, limited or stalled or, or what was the, 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 the role in terms of yourself uh, in relation to implementing those uh, recommendations? Thanks. Thanks, Jerry. Um, in, in terms of the duty of candor point, I think, you know, let, let, let's start by being absolutely open on this point. That there is some nervousness across some elements of the system about this, but I want to be clear. So I, I'm acknowledging that's there. The point of the consultation is to get better granularity and properly set out what actually those concerns are. Are they legitimate concerns that need to be addressed? 
or is this a question of you know, broadening and deepening the understanding of it? There are no reservations in terms of the system. The way the system will re respond to this report will be dictated by the minister's position on it. The minister at this stage has said that he accepts the recommendations and has asked us to work forward in terms of implementing them. The consultation is a, a very important step in terms of defining a policy proposal that will be put to the minister for his agreement. Um, that will be influenced by uh, the analysis of consultation, but as and when the minister signs off that policy, the time for debate and negotiation has ended, that will be implemented. Um, the, I can assure you there is no sense within the system that we are in any way seeking to delay or dilute anything that's in this, but we are absolutely committed to hearing all views and perspectives on this, be they strongly for it, be they strongly against it. It's important that we hear those and analyse them and the ministers hear that in terms of reaching conclusions. And in terms of the, the overall role, I mean, there, there, there hasn't been since March 2020 last year, uh, as I said, the, the, there was a pause put on the work programme and of the, I think it was 15 staff, uh, most of those were redeployed. So there hasn't been a huge amount of activity over the last year on this. We're, we're starting to uh, reclaim that mountain. Uh, in, in terms of my own work over the last year, it, it's been very much in uh, supporting colleagues in the department and dealing with the, the COVID issue plus the normal business of the department. So it's it's been a, a fairly full inbox over the last year. Your specific question, but limited elements of that have been hyponatremia related because of the pause and the underlying activity. Um, as I say, hopefully we're, we're starting to climb our way out of that. Okay, I appreciate that. Thanks. Thank you, Jerry. And Jonathan, uh, go ahead, Jonathan, with your question, please. Thank you, Chair, and, and thank you, Richard and, and Andrew, for, for coming before the committee. I think it's my first time meeting you both at, in the capacity at the committee. Uh, I suppose probably, Richard, you started off in, in, a, in a vein in which all of us will be deeply struck by, and this is about the dignity of the families involved who, for them, this very much is as real today as it was when it happened. Um, this has been very public for them. And I, I do accept what you're saying in relation to um, cannot comment on individuals. Uh, but as Carol has rightly pointed out, you know there is an issue of public confidence because while, while the structures of the health service may be different than what they were then, and everyone will recognize us to the betterment of our health service, uh, but some of the same individuals uh, are still involved uh, and that being also had a very prominent public media facing role in, in this past year. Uh, so therefore it rightly will cause distress to many of those families who are seeking answers, who, who are seeking to see the implementation of what was a very comprehensive report uh, into the inquiry by Justice O'Hara. So I, I suppose I, I take note of the point in which you've mentioned about and the engagement that you've had with families to date and you are picking up clearly from members that there still is an issue there that's being communicated back to us about engagement and, and I would encourage a more thorough and depth uh, piece of engagement with those families there is five of them uh, so it shouldn't be that hard to coordinate I, I recognize what you said people don't want to engage with that that is their own prerogative as well but it's important that that option is available in relation to and I think you touched on this point 
You mentioned about pre-COVID, there was 247 people working uh, on the uh, implementation program. What exactly is the number at present working on this? Um, Andrew, well, the, the 247, I think, refers to the membership, the, the collective membership of all the work streams. Yeah. Um, and again, I, I couldn't give you a, an accurate updated figure. It's probably something similar to that number who will be getting re-engaged as we ramp up activity uh, on this again. Um, and certainly uh, it will be around that. And uh, if anyone else wants to be involved, yeah. they can. Uh, and then in terms of the uh, the departmental staff, um, again, there are, we, we now, I suppose, part of my job and my role is as the program director. Um, we, in addition, have a full-time uh, program manager and a full-time deputy program manager. Um, recently created posts as well, and um, they are they are working on uh, across the piece in terms of the implementation of the program. And in addition to that, then we have a team of four who are working on the duty of candor um, consultation and policy uh, in relation to that as well. Uh, and then, of course, there are various other um, aspects of the report that, that are being taken forward by other colleagues in the department too. But we have we don't have many full time people, um, but we do have. I suppose we are ramping up again. Okay, you say you are, you are ramping up again, and I take it you you want to get back to that number of people that were working on the work streams, but sure. at present uh, you're saying that that ramp up has not happened at present and when do you anticipate it to exactly happen I suppose it's a it's a play on words I'm, I'm listening to here exactly how many are involved right now in relation to vis-a-vis -vis that 247 number that w was on prior to COVID well I suppose I mean it, it's not I suppose not as simple as saying that there are 247 people um, working on, on all aspects of the report um, again, some of those work are, are, are service users, some of those are clinicians and professionals who have a day job as well in the system. Um, so I, I suppose the, the level of activity with those work streams, as, as we have previously said, is low because we're just coming out of the pandemic. It is accelerating and we anticipate that it will ramp up further, but couldn't, I couldn't give you a figure as to how many of them. Also to be completely clear, I hope we didn't, but we don't. We don't mean to suggest that at a point in time, two hundred and forty-seven people were working full time on this. That was an indication of the number of people that were involved through the various work streams. And as Andrew said, some of those, uh, some of that two hundred forty-seven would have been individuals who maybe have clinical roles but step out of that to join a work stream. Some of that two forty-seven would have been service users yes. or carers. So, as as the the, I think the, the better metric is maybe that there was 15, 15 full-time staff in the department at a point in time. Currently, that's at three. Oh. There's a few others starting to come back part-time. This really depends on, on, on how we fare in terms of our journey out of the COVID issue. Okay, so that, that's maybe a fair, fair enough point, Richard, and, and I accept that. But um, in relation to when do you anticipate, if, if things continue on the flight path that they are in relation to COVID, when do you anticipate a full uh, revamp program in relation to delivering on these recommendations. Are we talking? Uh, are we talking next week? Are we talking a month away? It's important for us as a committee to hear that so that we can hold accountable the progress of the, the implementation program. Um, I, I, I hope after I finish, Jonathan, you're not going to accuse me of evasion, but it, it's incredibly difficult to give a definitive timescale on this. We are starting to try and ramp activity up. 
So as things, and you know, we're in a period where the demands of the pandemic in some areas have been decreasing. They've certainly been decreasing in, in terms of the pressures, for example, that respiratory wards uh, and the EDs are facing in terms of COVID. EDs are experiencing a completely different set of pressures. So where, where we have clinical colleagues involved, depends on the pressures they face, but equally colleagues in the department, um, whilst the, the the impact of the pandemic in terms of the, the front door of hospitals may be in a declining position at the moment, there are other work strands where we're ramping up on asymptomatic testing program. There's a whole swathe of work in terms of international travel, the vaccine program continues to work. So it's not just as easy as saying the graph and COVID is coming down therefore everything else goes up. All I can say at this stage is we're committed that where it's possible to release staff to go back to work on this, we will, we will do so and we will continue to try and ramp this up. But And, and I, I appreciate it. it's not a satisfactory answer at all, but it, it's difficult to be more precise than that at this stage. Okay, well, just as a committee, you know, I, I will be keeping a careful eye on this going forward because I think it is of vital importance that we see. Finally, and I won't take any more time, but can, can Richard, can you, can you give us more detail on the two recommendations for which there are no agreed action plans uh, and what has influenced the scale of progress in relation to these areas? The 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 first issue is around the the child the, the child death overview panel. That's a fairly complex piece of work that the safeguarding board is looking at for us. So they they've started some work. Uh, Thank you. And finally, then, as far as I can see at this point in time, is Orlea Flynn. Orlea, uh, go ahead, please. 
thanks Colin and thanks to um, Richard and Andrew. Um, just to go back to the recommendations and the action plans. Um, the last time the committee got the briefing, we were speaking with Donna around some of this, and she was saying back in March at that stage that um, you know that the department was hopeful that some of the recommendations um, could be over the line over the next six months, but she didn't want to be specific as to what recommendations would would fall into what order. Um, but just in your own opinion, at the pace that you are working at at the minute, are you still confident that you know over the coming months? that there will be a number of those recommendations that you can't actually sign off on. And Donna also did mention that some of the action plans um, did require implementation circulars that had to be drafted um, by staff within the department um, in conjunction with colleagues in the sector. And I'm just wondering if that piece of work around those um, implementation circulars, has that been um, completed at this stage? And then just finally, uh, my last question, um, we also had a bit of a discussion around the uh, trust oversight group and I know obviously that, that group, there was an impact on that group meeting um, as a result of COVID. But I know that back in March, um, Donna wasn't able to, um, she wasn't able to give any sort of specific timelines as to when that, um, that group, that oversight group of all the trusts would meet up collectively. And I know there's been engagement individually with the trusts but just given the influence and some of the momentum that may be able to bring to the speed of implementing the recommendations, do you have any dates of when that trust oversight group will meet again or has it indeed met since we met Donna um, in March? Thank you. Thanks. I, I'll deal with the first point and if Andrew, I think I'll cover the, the final two. And your first issue is about when can we expect to see real progress. As I, as I said to Jonathan, it, it's very difficult, but at the risk of Andrew kicking me under the table, I think if we remain on the trajectory we're on in terms of COVID and we, we can start to drift staff back, the position that Don alluded to, we'll go back to March as we were a couple of months away. I hope that certainly within a few months, we will start to see real traction in terms of rollout and implementation of some of these recommendations. My caveat is, unfortunately, a few months from now takes us into the autumn stroke winter. And we all carry a degree of nervousness about what that may bring in terms of the pandemic. But with a fair wind, I think that sort of time frame will we'll certainly start to see real traction on this. Andrew, the other? Yeah, on the other points then, uh, just in relation to the implementation circulars, uh, those circulars will be developed for on a case-by-case -case basis for each of the recommendations that are implemented. If I could pick out one example, that will probably be hitting the streets uh, any day now. Um, we have recently finished work uh, on the uh, HSC board member handbook, uh, which Donna will have mentioned at the last, um, at the last briefing. Um, that will require a circular to go out from the department. Uh, and I, I just have it in my inbox at the moment, actually. Uh, to trust uh, and ALB chairs and chief executives, just alerting them to to the publication of that uh, of the ALB handbook. Uh, in addition, and I suppose before it even uh, I suppose is is formally formally published, then it, we will notify the trust oversight group membership uh, that you mentioned uh, that this is going out. So they will have some advanced sight of that circular. Um, we do not have a date as to when the trust oversight group will meet collectively yet. Again, that's one of the most early things, the priorities in terms of getting up and running 
um, again, a, a post-COVID. Um, so we don't have a date yet, but um, again, we will be, I suppose, just getting all of our all of the architecture and structures back into gear in some form. I wonder, Andrew, it would be great then if um, yourself and Richard, even if you could let the committee know once uh, you have that date set, knowing that the oversight group of the trusts are, are meeting up again, just so, so we know when that's taking place. But thank you. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Aurelia. And thank you, Richard and Andrew, for attending committee this morning and for the presentation and um, for your, your answers to members as well. Um, and I suppose we will just leave on, on, on the final thought, as we all are acutely aware of, of the pain and suffering of, of the families involved here. But listen, I want to thank you for appearing in the committee this morning and to wish you both all the best in the time ahead and take care. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. Okay, members. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm I'm conscious of time. There is there anything briefly that members want to raise there before we move on to correspondence? I'm conscious that other members have other committees. Chair, um, so chair, go ahead, Carol. Yes, so yeah, go ahead, Carol. The being open framework, I think, needs to be um, a bit more definitive um, because while there is a consultation on Judy Condor. Um, the Bain Open Framework is really, really important. And from the health and social care professionals I've spoken to, there's very little trickle down to this. Um, so I, I, I just think uh, we need a bit more definition, certainly on that. Are, are you asking that we'd receive maybe a written briefing in relation to that, Carol? Or what's your proposal? Yeah, I, think, in I, think we, I think we should get a written briefing on it. And I have no doubt we'll come back to the hyponatremia follow-up at some stage. Yeah, no, I think that would be a piece of work we need to keep an eye on um, and keep track of. So certainly, so members, are members content that we seek uh, seek an update on that uh, being open framework. Yeah. Any other views, members, before we move to correspondence? No. Okay. Thank you. So members, moving then on to sorry, moving to SRs before I go to correspondence. We have we have several SRs in front of us this morning. So we now move to consideration of two health protection SRs in relation to travel. I can advise members that one of these SRs, number 132, has been added as an additional agenda item. Departmental officials are here to brief the committee on the provisions of both SRs. I refer members to papers at tab 8 of the pack and to tab 13 in your table papers. So we'd now like to welcome by video link once again to our committee, Ms. Elaine Colgan, who is head of Health Protection Branch. Good afternoon, Elaine. Can you hear me okay? Sorry, Chair, we're just trying to get Elaine on. I don't know if you want to head on through to correspondence while we, we get Elaine. Yes, okay, I'll do that. We will We will go ahead then, and with your permission, members will go ahead to correspondence while we're waiting for officials to come on the line. And I'm conscious that, that uh, we are running significantly over. So, um, members, moving on then, a couple of items that I want to draw members' attention to. First of all is item 9.2. It's a departmental response to the committee's request for further information on a number of issues following the briefing from the minister and the CMO back on the 22nd of April. So do members have any comments in relation to that item? Chair? No, I don't. Yes, go ahead, Pam. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I think it's regrettable that the department haven't, um, they haven't captured the number of private autism diagnoses uh, recognised by trusts, especially in light of the, the soaring 
waiting lists uh, in many specialities. I think there's a strong case for preparing uh, an evidence base for the health and social care provided by the independent sector, because uh, I think that could really inform you know future reforms. Um, and I think given the, the focus on rolling out more multidisciplinary teams, the position mm-hmm. in respect of not expanding um, AHP places as a concern and raises again the question um, around how the um, the current absence of the multi-year budget is is impacting the necessary changes to the size and nature of the workforce. So, I mean, I do have um, serious concerns around this and, and in particular um, in relation to not having that um, data set there and available or, or even starting to record it. Yeah, I, I would agree, Pam. I think, you know, there's that old saying that what gets measured gets done. And, and equally, what doesn't get measured doesn't get done. And I think that is a concern. Um, I see Carol indicating. Carol, go ahead. Certainly, Chair, it's not on this issue. I want to come down to 9.9 and I want to come down to the IVF stuff when, when it's more appropriate. Okay. Okay, thank you. So, um are members then content that we write to the department in relation to the issues that Pam has outlined there, um, expressing our concern around those those issues and asking for uh, those measurements, a, a way to be sought for those measurements to be taken to inform delivery or lack of delivery as it may be for, for that very, very hard-pressed sector? Members content with that? Yeah, thank you. Okay, members, thank you. Moving on then to... Um, yeah, so would members then um, would members be content to write to the department to request that the information on percentage uptake and what actions it is addressing undertaken to address low uptake in particular? Members content with that, thank you. Item 9.6 then is a departmental response to issues raised at the budget briefing on the 29th of April. Do members have any comments in relation to that correspondence? And are members content to note for now, pending further scrutiny? Sure. Budgetary processes. Thank you. Yes, sure. So just go back to the conversation we had at the start of the meeting under matters arising about waiting lists. I think it would be good if possible. I know we've got indicative budget headlines. Previously, I'm a certainly got uh, an outline of a budget in the Royal College Surgeon's 10 point plan, but I think it would be good to go back to the department to ask them for a breakdown of the full budget and address in the waiting list, including health and social care. Yeah, members content that we seek that information. Yeah, thank you. Item 9.6 then is a departmental response to issues raised at the budget briefing. No, sorry, that's the one we've just covered. Item 9.8 is a response from the RNIB to the committee's request for information on support available for those with sight loss during COVID pandemic. And that was to include uh, the vaccination programme, as I recall. Uh, and uh, Any comment members on that correspondence? No, members content to note. Thank you. Item 9.9 then is a response from the Western Trust regarding women's reproductive health care services. Is that the one you were looking in on, Carol? It is, Chair. Sorry, Chair. I just think the response from the Western Trust is ridiculous. To be frank, it's almost like, uh, well, we can't do it. And, you know, no sense of obligation, no sense of even a proper explanation. So I'd like to go back and ask for a bit more detail on their response. To be honest, I think it's not good enough. Okay, any other comments, members? Members content with that? 
Okay, thank you. Right. Item nine, yeah. Do I hear someone there? Sorry, Chair, I just agree with Carl there, just in the response. I think it was a pretty uh, feeble response, and yeah, I agree. Okay. Item 9.12 then is, is from an individual in relation to the mother and baby Magdalene Laundries matter. Any comment from members? And are members content to note? Yeah, thank you. Uh, so, members, any other comments or proposals on any other items of correspondence in the main pack before I go on to the table pack? Sir, Chair, sorry, it's just sorry. about the, the um, IVF. You know, the, we've got mm -hmm. correspondence now from Furness and Fertility, and it has been raised uh, previously. Um, and, you know, we, we accept that COVID has had an impact on a lot of services, but, you know, when it comes to this stuff, people's clocks are ticking, and if we could have a bit more of a definition of what actually is happening. Even Santa said it's already there in, in DNA and the minister's own commitments to us. I think it would be good to get a, an updated position. Okay, members content with that proposal? Thank you. Uh, moving on then to table correspondence. Oh, sorry, members, before I move on, are, are members otherwise content with the actions proposed on the correspondence memo? Chair, one, one more second. Yes. I, I think we might um, 9.4, which was the correspondence from the Minister regarding the vaccination programme. It was around the ethnicity of the, um, the, the vaccine take-up. Oh, yes, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah you're, you're, you're right. It would be useful to maybe have those figures as a percentage of each um, ethnic pop population in, in Northern Ireland, uh, because I think it is important that, that the vaccine information campaigns effectively reach all, all communities. Um, so I just think it would be good if we could go back maybe and ask them for uh, to have those figures presented as percentage. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And actually, actually, yeah, and actually, I, I, I actually had that was that was the the uh, the issue that I was speaking there about asking for the percentage uptake. It is very hard to assess what those figures mean when they're yeah. just uh, starkly presented like that. There is no context, so I think it is important that we get a percentage. Um, and I think that's a that's a particularly vulnerable group, and I think it's particularly incumbent on us to make sure that that we are very well aware of what's going on with with the group and what support or additional communication or encouragement or provision may be needed. So that's 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 a good point. So members content that we seek that percentage update and Thank uptake you. from the department. Thank you. Thank you, Pam. Um, so. Moving on, so members then otherwise content with the actions proposed in the the main correspondence memo before we're tabled. Yeah, thank you. So members, the table pack contains a number of further items of correspondence that I want to draw your attention to. 9.14 is from the department in relation to proposals for a new regional model of service for separated and unaccompanied asylum seeking children. Um, and I suppose it, 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 like, that is obviously a hugely important issue. However, I do I do think that children who are accompanied also need attention, but um, that's maybe that's maybe something that we should look at on on, a, on another day. But for now, I think it's significantly important that maybe we would seek to ask the children's law centre to include us in their in their response. I think it would be very good to get their perspective. So any submission that they make to that consultation, that we would ask that we would be copied in for information into that. Would sure. members be content with that? And I any other comments? Yeah, ahead, sure. So the Human Rights Commission and the Children's, the, ch the Commissioner for Children and Young People as well, 
on this is I think it would be important if they're going to submit the, the copy to them previously. I'm sure they will. Yeah. Okay. Any other comments in that one, members? Are content with those actions? Yeah. Okay, so item 9.17 is correspondence from the 123 GP campaign, thanking the committee for meeting with them during Mental Health Awareness Week. The latter also requested the committee write to the department to request that commitments to counselling are included in the mental health strategy. So um, I thought that was a really good session, I have to say. I think it, it provided a real um, positive suggestion in terms of how we might take some pressure off the GPs. And I think we all very much understand that not only are GPs under massive pressure, but that people are suffering as a result of not being able to get access to GPs. And I, I know from our previous engagement with GPs, they would welcome any additional support they can get. I know the uh, the gold standard in respect of that is the multi the full multidisciplinary teams, and there's an urgent need to get those those rolled out. But short of that, I think there is some merit and some scope in providing counselling support into GPs, and I think that would be tremendously valuable at this time. Um, and, and I think given the unprecedented witness, given the COVID pressures, we should be looking at novel and workable and practical solutions that will work in the short term. So would members be content that we that we would write, or, or do members want to make any other comment in that section, that, that we write to the department to request that counselling be included in the mental health strategy? Yeah. Okay, members, thank you for that. And are members content to note the remaining items then of table correspondence? Yeah, thank you. Can I check, Clerk, have we managed to get a, the officials from the department on the line on the SRs? I don't think we have. Yes, Chair, no, Elaine is available, so she is, so we can go back to okay. the, the SRs. Okay, well, I'll go, back to the, I'll go back to those SRs then. Members, thank you for your patience. So we're now moving to consideration of two health protection SRs in relation to travel. Uh, I've already stated that one of those has been added in an additional agenda item. And so I'd now like to go ahead and welcome Miss Elaine Colgan, Head of Health Protection Branch. Good afternoon, Elaine, and you're very welcome. Are you able to hear us okay? Uh, yes, thank you, Chair. Are you able to hear me? Yep, yep we're hearing Great. you are fine. And are you also joined by Gillian Hines this morning? No, I'm just health on my own today. Branch? She wasn't able to make it, so it's just okay. me. Okay. Okay, well, listen, Elaine, you're a very, very familiar face to us, so, so we'll, we'll cut short the, the procedure stuff and we'll go straight to your presentation. Thank you. No problem. Thank you. Um, I will, as usual, just outline quickly the regulations and then take questions. So the first set, SR121, which came into operation on the 12th of May, had four changes. Uh, the first one we discussed the last time I visited committee, uh, which was the request by the examiner to include the word reasonably in Regulation 27. And this was owing to the increase in the associated fine for red list offences. And it was agreed that the authorised officer should have reasonable belief that the offence was actually relating to a red list arrival as opposed to an amber or green list arrival. Uh, owing to the increased concern and the risk of variants of concern, the Maldives, Nepal and Turkey were added to the Schedule 1 red list countries for which managed isolation was required. Uh, in terms of Schedule 4, which is the uh, list of exemptions for the various provisions, it was amended to an, add an additional exemption for transit passengers who arrive into Northern Ireland and immediately travel directly to the Republic of Ireland. And such passengers are no longer required to comply with Regulation 8, which is the requirement to book and undertake tests if they're able to satisfy certain evidential requirements in relation to the residency and travel plans to the south. Um, this was important because whilst um, 
they may have been going straight to the Republic of Ireland, they would have to book and a day two and day eight test, but actually operationally they were not able to do that because they didn't have a Northern Ireland or UK address in which to make the booking. Um, but it was important that by this we didn't create a loophole for other people as well. So it has been carefully written so that the onus is most definitely on the passenger to prove that they're going to ROI or that they are and that they're going straight there. It's not up to immigration officers to to prove that they are not. Um, if sufficient evidence of intent can't be provided, then all testing requirements must be met. Uh, so the last amendment in this set was to add the Maldives and Turkey to Schedule 8, which is a prohibition of uh, direct aircraft arrivals into Northern Ireland. Uh, not so relevant for the Maldives, but it was important for Turkey. And the second set of amendment, or the second set of regulations, sorry, was um, uh, SR 132, which came into force this Monday past on the 24th. And it made four amendments. Uh, the first was to introduce some countries re back into Schedule 2, which is the list of green countries. And there was 12 of those added, uh, Australia, Brunei, Falkland Islands, Faroe Islands, Gibraltar, Iceland, Israel and Jerusalem, New Zealand, Portugal, St Helena, Ascension, Tristan da Cunha, Singapore, South Georgia and the South Sandwich Islands. Uh, under the travel regulations, all of the green arrivals are only required to provide to book and take a day two test, not a day two and day eight, as is the case with Amber. Um, however, in parallel in guidance, what we have done for those arrivals from Portugal, Israel and Singapore is ask them to take a day eight test when they get here. And that is provided free of charge. And there's information available in NI Direct on how to access that test. The other change that the regulations made was uh, to change the seafarer exemption in Schedule 4 uh, and it excludes seafarers, inspectors and surveyors who work on cruise ships from the exemption from managed isolation. And this means that if any cruise ship member is travelling to Northern Ireland from a red list country or who has been in a red list country in the previous 10 days and is going is travelling here to board a cruise ship to work on it, then they must undertake managed isolation first. And this is a public health requirement to protect both them and the passengers on board the ship. And the, the final substantive amendment was to prohibit the arrival of vessels from Turkey, which uh, was in line with what the other devolved administrations did the week before, and to, type, to correct a typographical error in entry five in table one in, part, in schedule four. Uh, so that's the, the two regulations. And as usual, I'm happy to take any questions committee members may have. Okay, thank you, Elaine. Um, I suppose, I suppose uh, I, I just want to reflect on, and I know we have discussed this in recent meetings around how the process can be made clearer, how the, how the, the messages can be communicated. And I think at the start of the week, we did see some examples of where that confusion continues to, and it's, and it's understandable. Things are changing very, very fast. Um, and also we have confusion here. We also have confusion at times between what's happening here and in the, in the 26 counties. And given that, that the vast majority of our international travel onto the island, Comes, comes that route, these are issues that remain outstanding in terms of, you know, there's there's not really a sense of cohesion or so, and, and I know you have committed to, to looking at how this could all be done better or in a process that, that's, that uh, is more streamlined. Is there any progress to report in relation to that or in relation to how we can ensure that the public and travellers know what's expected of them and we can ensure that we're coordinating and cooperating across the island to protect all, everybody on the island? 
Um, yes, so we are, we have been working very hard and we have changed NI Direct uh, quite a number of times in the last couple of weeks uh, to, to streamline various pages. Um, and on the international side specifically, we are um, gradually moving to a, a situation where we really only have three main pages, which is green, amber and red. Um, and it, it, it subsequently means that there's a lot of information on the one page. Um, so if you're traveling to a green country, all of the information you need will be on that page and it will be quite lengthy. But it means that you won't have several clicks and you won't have to go and look at different pages and go back um, and it, it's a lot clearer in what you need to do. Uh, we've also got some graphics in design that will be pushed out through social media which clearly explain for the three traffic light colours what your requirements are in, in, a, in a snapshot. Uh, so, I, you know, we were kind of reflecting and how, how whenever the international travel regulations came in, it was relatively simple. You had to fill in a form and you had to self-isolate. But as this has grown over the last nine months, it has become more and more complex. Um, and many people won't have traveled perhaps since last summer. And they, this will all be very new to them. Um, so we would encourage people uh, to please take the time before booking travel to, to, to go on to NI Direct and look at the requirements for each color. Uh, even if the country that you're visiting is, is green or amber, it may not be when you go or and so you should maybe just check all of the requirements and um, before you decide whether to travel on the on the common travel area guidance yes and uh, that was the the confusion this week um, and we can apologize for that it has been rectified um, and the the CTA travel page has been reviewed as well so hopefully that will also be a little more streamlined um, from the last few days but we don't we don't rest on this we do constantly um, take queries and from particularly from public health agency that that get them through jet from the general public other stakeholders who who um, have made suggestions and we've we've implemented them tourism and I was one this week so you know we're close to it so sometimes it's difficult for us to see why it's not comprehensible um because it's comprehensible to us because it's what we do all day but uh, so we are always uh, engaging with stakeholders and we will continue to keep this as simple as we possibly can yeah and that and that i think is why the committee would would have indicated and continue to indicate that the quicker we can get back to the the uh the SA process, the quicker you know, so you get feedback from members who are speaking to a lot of constituents on that. Um, it's also important, I think, to, to add to your observation that, that a country may no longer be on the green list by the time you travel. It also may not be on the green list after you travel. It could go on to another list after you arrive in that country. So that's an important consideration that people need to always be aware of as well. Yes. Thank so thank you. I'm going to go then to Jerry. Carol, for a question. Jerry. Thanks, Chair. Thanks, Elaine. Uh, two quick questions. Um, do we have the numbers or do you have the numbers rather uh, on the number of people who have uh, been involved in the hotel quarantine scheme up to this point um, or the latest figures? Uh, and then kind of the Chair kind of alluded to it, but in regards to the um, sort of mixed messaging or, or, or the messaging around the summer, I mean, it, will there be or what level of discussions have taken place to kind of uh, encourage people uh, to not travel uh, internationally, um, obviously, unless they, they have to for, um, you know, essential uh, or, or work reasons. So uh, there was obviously a bit, of, a bit of discussion in the media this week, but has there been any recommendation uh, or consideration rather uh, of uh, a public health message to kind of encourage people uh, to stay uh, either on the island of Ireland or within the uh, CTA? Um, so is there any update that you can provide on that? Um, for the summer especially, thanks. 
Yeah, so um, I'm just looking through the data that I have and I don't have a figure for managed isolation. Um, I will come back to committee with that, but what I can say is it's very low. Um, it, it's not a significant number at all um, compared to what other jurisdictions have had and what they've faced, um, both south and in England and Scotland. Uh, so it has been be, be very manageable for us, um, but I will come back to committee with a, a figure on that. Um, on terms of the discussions not to travel and the guidance, um, I guess at the moment we haven't legally in law in any way um, prohibited international travel uh, so there is no reason um, not to travel internationally at the moment in law um, that said obviously guidance is important and um, the, we are looking at, at sort of what we, what messages we want to convey in the summer, particularly around amber countries. Um, you may have seen some of the other ministers in England have, have announced that people shouldn't travel to amber countries. And I think our minister mentioned something similar during the week. Um, so we are looking at the messaging coming into the summer. Uh, amber countries are, are, are countries that the, the situation basically elsewhere is worse than Northern Ireland. Um, so there is a message to be had there about uh, whether you should or what what sort of um guidance we want to give the public on that for green countries and um, they're not they're not worse than northern ireland they're better than northern ireland so that's why they're green the risk is lower and uh, it's not it's not removed completely and that's why there's other mitigations around the travel um but uh, yes we are looking at that i suppose is the the short answer <laughs> thanks elaine just a quick quick follow-up to your first answer elaine um the, the numbers on uh uh hotel quarantine are, are low and appreciate if, if you can get those figures uh, is that because people are are, are isolating uh, from red countries they're isolating uh, in england or in scotland uh, or they're they're isolating at home or, or what's the the rationale or, or your understanding of, of the low uh, numbers uh, thanks um, it's mainly there else that if they're coming to Northern Ireland from a red country, they would be isolating elsewhere. We only have one direct, or for the most part, so for, until this week passed, we only had one international direct arrival. Um, so anybody coming to Northern Ireland would have had to transit through England. So they must stay in managed isolation there, or they have to come through the south. And likewise, unless they're double vaccinated, they have to stay there. Um, so the numbers have been small. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, and I don't think there's any other members indicating there, Elaine. So um, thank you for appearing at committee this morning or this afternoon again and for your uh, advice, uh, your answer to those questions. Thank you, Elaine. No thank you. And take care. Slam. Okay, bye. So now, members, I'd like to go through and formally consider each of those SRs in turn, and both SRs are subject to negative resolution. So I refer members to papers at tab 8 of your pack, particularly to the clerk's memo at tab 8.1. And this, uh, this SR 2021 forward slash 121 makes an amendment in relation to particular managed isolation offences, adds the Maldives, Nepal and Turkey to the red list, and includes an additional amendment for passengers to transit from the north to the south in relation to the requirement to book and undertake tests. The examiner of statutory rules has reported that this SR has been laid in breach of the 21-day rule, but that she is content for the department's reason for the breach and has no other issues to raise. Have members any further issues wish to raise in relation to that SR? No, thank you. If not, then can I ask members to agree formally that the Committee for Health has considered SR 2021 forward slash 121, the health protection, coronavirus, international travel, Amendment number two, regulations, 
2021 and has no objection to the rule. Are we agreed? Agreed. Thank you, members. Then the additional agenda item, which was SR 2021-132. I refer members to a copy of the SR and the SL5 letter, which is a tab 13 of your table papers. I can advise members that this SR adds a number of countries to the green list, provides exemptions for seafarers from managed self-isolation, and prohibits the arrival of vessels from Turkey. The regulations were made on the 21st of May 2021, laid on the 24th of May 2021, and came into operation on 24th of May 2021. The examiner of statutory rules has reported that this SR has been laid in breach of the 21-day rule, but that she is content for the department's reason for the breach, and she has no other issues with this rule to raise. So have members any further issues they wish to raise in relation to this rule? No, thank you. If not, then can I ask members to agree formally that the Committee for Health has considered SR 2021-132, the Health Protection Coronavirus International Travel Amendment Number 3 Regulations 2021 and has no objection to the rule. Are we content? Yeah, members agree. Thank you. So, members, moving forward then to uh, our forward work program, I refer you to the draft forward work program, which has been prepared by uh, committee staff and is a tab 10.1 of the pack. Are members content to note the forward work program? Yeah, thank you, members. And, members, any other business then for today's meeting? Okay, thank you. And, members, I really appreciate it. It's been a long meeting. There's a lot of very, very significant issues dealt with today and I, I, I appreciate the members' contribution to all of that. So members, date, time and place of next meeting. Next meeting will be on Thursday, the 3rd of June at 9.30am by a video link and members, please all take care and keep safe in, in the week ahead and I'll see you again next week. Cormier, I'll go for, I'll go for.